0: All right, we're uh, back for more Inappropriate Earl. You know, it's been a big couple weeks with the Tommy Morris episodes. Two-part, four-hour Tommy Morris episode from the Comedy Store. Then Brian Redband came in to give us his view. And then Annabelle DeSisto, Vanderpump Rules. We needed a woman just to break up the the dude-heavy monopoly. Now we have a man who I've admired from the moment I met him. The best-dressed man in comedy and one of the funniest dudes in comedy.
1: Paul F. Tompkins.
0: Give it up for <laughs> Rob
1: Schneider, guys. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Ryan Stout is in the Inappropriate <laughs> Earl Building. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, mean, I was just going to come hang out. We could talk about whatever, but if you want to talk about Tommy Morris, we could do that.
0: No, I want to talk because, you know, you're one of the people who I've known for uh, probably 10 years. Yeah. But I don't know.
1: Right, right. Because we just, we run into each other infrequently and it's polite, but we've, we've never had dinner. And we should. Yeah, we should absolutely have dinner. That's actually kind of how I gauge my friendships are at a new level. Like if we've had a meal together. That, and we, that changes things for me.
0: And 10 years in, we should have broken bread. Yeah, we
1: probably should have. Not at a comedy club. Yeah, we actually leave the space and go sit down someplace. Not to network. And not with 12 people. One on one, or, or, you know, maybe three of us, four of us. But yeah, I like one on one. Well, uh, I think the other thing too, when you're a comic, when you ride in the car someplace to like a gig together, I think that's another bonding moment.
0: I would be humbled and honored to open for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, we'll figure that out. We'll figure that out. I don't know
0: out. if I would set you up the best. I mean, I'm a little dry and, uh, I'm not like a Frasier Smith. Hey, everyone! What's hey, happening? let's do
1: it. Ah, These are the snaps. jokes.
0: <laughs> uh but I, uh, you know, I've looked up to you for a long time. Thanks, man. And uh, since I didn't know that much about you, I Googled your name. Okay. And it said other celebrities who people who've looked you up. Okay. Pop up, and the first one was Lorenzo Lamas. Is that true? Yeah, I wonder. That's strange. And I have a borderline obsession with Lorenzo Lamas.
1: I mean, that might just be something with your Google monitoring your <laughs> yeah, that I your search histories that I've looked up uh, Lorenzo Lamas. That's that's odd. Usually, when uh, when people have looked me up, it's it's other the other people listed are all Chelsea lately panelists. Right. Because, you know, I was, I would do that show and people would be like, who the hell is that guy? So I would look that up. And then, uh, um, Lorenzo Lamas is weird just because I, I replaced, oh, I was supposed to do, you know, that David Spade show that on true TV, the prank show. It's called Fameless.
0: I, I do not, but I'm out of the loop on current shows.
1: No, that's fine. I almost never watch television, but uh, it's, a, it's a prank show. We prank people who want to be famous, and uh, so it's a lot of fake TV shows where, right. like the first one I did, we were pretending to do like a cheaters type show, and I was the host, and the person who's coming in, we're like, all right, so you've been selected to be the new co-host on this on this show, and uh, we're going to catch somebody cheating right now. They're in that hotel room. We're going to break the door open. And this is the cheater's wife and it's an actress and she's crying and we're going to break into a hotel room and this person's like, okay, I get, let's do it. (laughs) You know, completely, they don't, they have no morals because they're like, yeah, as long as I get to be famous, let's, let's go ahead and uh, make this happen one way or another um so which is always the kind of the position we try to put people in on the show but uh, there was one sketch i was supposed to do with lorenzo lamas and then i think he canceled last minute but it was called you be the judge and it was like a it was like a talent show where um Basically, we tell people like, hey, you know, we're tired of Paul Abdul and Simon Cowell and all these like music people sitting judging talent. We want regular people to judge talent. And so this person who we're pranking is like, yeah, I could totally do that. I'm not afraid to be a judge and tell people that they suck or whatever. And so we get her on a panel with two other actors and then I bring out talent. And of course, the two actors try to talk shit and they don't do well at it. And then it gets to her and she just unloads. And then it, the twist comes. I'm like, all right, we're going to go to a break. When we come back, the talent, the, the, it was a magician and a dancer. They're going to decide which one of these judges has what it takes to be a judge on You Be the Judge, and one of these judges will be eliminated when we come back. And so then it's like, what the fuck's going on? What, they're, they're One of us is going to be eliminated? Um, and then when we come back, we eliminate one of the actor judges, Are you following me on this?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I am following. No,
1: no, no. But it's just, it does get complex, this one. So uh, then we were going to have a celebrity judge come out, and we're going to let the celebrity judge judge our final two judges. And that celebrity judge was going to be Lorenzo Lamas. And uh, he bailed last minute, so we ended up with like a Playboy playmate. And so she did it. But this is all on, I mean, you watch the show, and you can any listeners can see it on, on the old television there.
0: Playmates seem to be the go-to backup guests. Like,
1: Well, especially when they don't have to do a lot. You know, when they've got a few questions they have to ask and when you can put, you know, an earwig in their ear and the director can say, all right, now ask them this. And they can just repeat words. They don't have to be on their toes. They don't have to memorize lines. They can just, they could just be a puppet, a really good-looking puppet.
0: Now, it's kind of uh, fitting that I have you on with the big news last night. Big news last night. Last night. uh, You know, I'm sure you've heard of it. The Sunday night, the Miss Universe contest. Uh Uh-huh. The great comic, Steve Harvey. Yeah. Made a boo-boo. Right. Called the wrong winner's name. And then he sent out a tweet spelling, uh, misspelling uh, Colombia and Philippines. (laughs) Uh, You're a host. You've hosted a lot of things.
1: Yeah. And that's a live situation for him. So
0: is it... Do you, now he said today that uh what he had on his card was correct in terms of you know uh, the correct winner in second place but the teleprompter was wrong have you ever run into that
1: Um, I've never run into that, but I mean, when, when things do come down to last minute like that, like if you don't have producers that check and double check and recheck and make sure that the correct information is going out, um, yeah, that stuff falls apart. I hadn't even considered the the teleprompter being wrong. Um, but, uh... I just think it's... I didn't actually see it happen. It's amazing. So, um, yeah, I heard it was cringeworthy and awkward, and I didn't want to watch it. Because as a host, I mean, from the story that I heard, he, like, showed the card to the camera. And he was like, yeah. that's that's my fault. I apologize. This is what it's supposed to be. And uh, when, when you're live like that, you you have mistakes and you have to correct them. Um, I think a lesser host would have just been like looking off to the side to some producer going, what do I do? I said the wrong name. What should I do? Whereas I think somebody who's used to being on stage in front of live crowds like Steve Harvey is, I think they, they self-correct and they take responsibility and they go, all right, let's stop everything. Let's make sure this is right. And then let's continue forward like we should. And uh, it sounds like that's what he did. And, that's hard. It's really awkward when you're building up an entire competition to that final moment, and then that final moment collapses. Well, but you know, there he only has so many options, and he corrected it. So you have to take what you take.
0: But what made it even more awkward was that uh, in the arena, the two biggest contingents were Colombia and Portugal, uh, or the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was just this awesome wave of applause from the Colombians Uh-huh. and then he kind of just meekly walks up next to her with the most horrified look on your face. Yeah. You can imagine. Right. And he's like, um, there's been a mistake. And then it just, it was like a pro wrestling crowd. Eesh. So, and then he sent out the tweet where he
1: misspelled countries' <laughs> names. Is, is he dyslexic? Uh,
0: he might be, uh, because he spelled Philippines, like, uh, Philippians in the Bible. Oh. And then Columbia. Well, I mean, he's
1: a, he's a nice Christian man. That might've just been a, a, a self-correct on his phone. Some I'm sort sorry. of autocorrect with the iPhone.
0: Got a lot of retweets, like 13,000 retweets, uh-huh. which, Uh which you're, you've got a lot of followers on Twitter. I mean, that's uh, a big deal. I,
1: well, 13,000 retweets is huge. And, uh, cause usually that gets uh, out to a lot of people.
0: And he had like, uh, 13,000 favorites. I mean, it's blowing up. Right. It might be beneficial to him in the long run. To Steve? I mean, from the
1: standpoint of I could see SNL doing a sketch on this. and Yeah, I think it's good in that uh, it, he screwed up. He took responsibility. He tried to make it better. It's not as though... It's not as though he did some horrendous thing intentionally. Right. You know, I think this is one of those situations where everybody is on the same page that, like, the guy screwed up. I feel bad for him. I think everybody watching is like, oh, I would have hated to be in his shoes. And now this story with the teleprompter, I think anybody else would recognize, like, ugh, yeah, whatever you put in the teleprompter, Ron Burgundy's going to read. But... <laughs> You know, in that situation, you're announcing a winner and the winner just got typed in. It was like they had to get information from the judges during the commercial break. It had to go back to some control room. Somebody had to tell the teleprompter operator to type this in and then they did. And then if it was switched, like Steve doesn't have any control over that. So even then for him to take responsibility is huge. I mean, you're not going to throw some teleprompter operator under the bus necessarily. Nobody knows who that person is. Uh, right. but, um, I, I think the public is well aware and, and sympathetic in situations like that. It's not like when you're a comic and you're on stage and you drop some sort of, you know, uh derogatory term.
0: Well, I've done that.
1: Yeah. I think we all have, which is, uh, if you didn't get in trouble for it, it's because you're not famous enough.
0: Well, I'm definitely not famous enough.
1: Neither am I. Isn't yeah, but- that strange? Like. Um, everybody makes a big deal about like the language that gets used on stage, but if you're not famous and you use that language, nothing happens, which makes me wonder like, okay, these people writing these blogs that are upset with, well, that's a racial slur. That's a derogatory term for homosexual people. That's a, that's marginalizing to transgender people. Like they're only upset If they can get somebody in trouble, right? But if they're not famous, now it's like, well, I'm not going to get any fame off of this, so I'm not going to call anybody out.
0: Well, that's why I do that show, roast battle. Yeah, you know, I I play, I, I am the house racist, right? And uh, I say some from
1: day one. From day one, you're like, I would like to be racist. Um, (laughs) Well,
0: it was based off of uh, basically a certain talent coordinator at the comedy store Uh who no longer (laughs) works there. Who was a gift of gab. Okay. And, uh, you know, the show wasn't as popular as, you know, back then. Uh-huh. It was just a bunch of comics. Sure. So I thought, oh, this will be funny. Everyone will get the joke. Right. And then uh, two years later, we're going to Sundance. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, it's really not the way I wanted to go to Sundance is the house races. <laughs> to be completely honest with you.
1: Right. And then to have to explain comedy to people like, no, no, no. I've been doing this character for years now, guys. You, yeah. you have to let this live because this is part of the show now.
0: I mean, in two years of doing it, Jim Carrey is the only one to fully understand what I was doing because he was a judge. And he immediately came up to me after the show. He's like, hey, Archie, where's Edith? Uh-huh. And I was like, well, okay, if he gets it, I'm right, right, maybe on the right
1: path. He understands that I'm playing a racist to make fun of racism. Yeah, I'm yeah. not really. Genuinely.
0: Because I once had a huge black dude come up to me after the show. He's like, what's with the racist bullshit, man? And he was very big guy and very serious. Uh huh. And I'm like, oh, you know, it's like Archie Bunker. It's a character. And he's like, who the what's fuck is Archie, Archie Bunker? Bunker? Yeah. I'm like, oh, what?
1: <laughs> yeah. How do you How do you explain a reference to somebody if they don't... Well, I mean, I'm they, in my 40s. If they're not comedy... Uh, Savvy. Right.
0: But, I mean, the things I grew up with was all in the family and, and probably the most politically incorrect era of television ever uh, in the 70s. You know, like Archie Bunker would say the N-word on CBS. Yeah. Which is crazy. That's nuts. Um, you know, uh, the Jeffersons had a couple N-word episodes, and, uh-huh. uh, you know, uh, MASH was a pretty wacky uh you know, uh, not necessarily racially charged, but they did a lot of, you know, gay topics. Absolutely. Know, right. The, the White Shadow.
1: Uh-huh. I'm talking about shows. You weren't even born yet. Um, I was born in 82. So the first day that Cheers aired was the day I was born.
0: Right. And that was a, uh, I think that and like the Cosby show and like the 80s sitcoms were more uh,
1: not as cutting edge. Fa- family friendly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, you know, just different influences, I guess. Like what was your favorite uh show as a kid to watch?
1: Um, I mean, I watched Cheers a lot when I was a kid um, just because, you know, it was on number one and number two, like I almost felt like, well, oh, I was born when this show was born so right. we're kind of like it's a sibling i guess but i mean i had to be it, how long was it on the air 10 11 long years, 10 years. Yeah, yeah yeah so by the time i was old enough to actually get it i mean it was still in like reruns and stuff like that but uh, i watched a lot of like as a small child like the muppets were probably the first thing that i glommed onto and uh, i really i was really annoyed by Fozzie cuz he was a really shitty comedian like that was that was known to me as a four-year-old like this guy sucks um and uh i always loved the two men in the balcony
0: sadler and waldorf, sadler and
1: waldorf yeah and uh, the way they would just sit back and get to comment on things like as a child i thought they were the best because they didn't have to interact with any of the wackiness right. they could just sit there and talk about it which i think there is something there that got in my head where i'm like do that in life just sit back and observe and then you know be be sarcastic about it or just pick at it or you know cut the legs out from under it because that seems like a a valuable thing
0: well that's what Jeff Ross would always tell me he's like you know Earl we love the racist stuff but it's getting a little too wacky uh, why don't you be like Stadler and Waldorf and I, I didn't know the reference so mm-hmm. like, uh, I thought he meant the golfer <laughs> Greg Stadler but so that was your first maybe itch to do comedy. Um, I mean, I know you were only like
1: a baby, but right. I, I mean, I was still in a walker at that point. But it, no, I just enjoyed the Muppets, and then of course, as a kid in the '80s, I mean, stand-up comedy was just taking flight. Like well, there was stand-up comedy on every channel, and you would watch late-night talk shows, and there was stand-up. There, Evening at the Improv. I remember watching Evening at the Improv in elementary school. And I remember my bedtime was nine o'clock and that's when it would come on. And on Wednesday night in El Paso, Texas, uh, it would come on Wednesday night, nine o'clock and I would watch it and I would stay up till 10 and just like, uh, most nights I would just go to bed. Like my parents would know that I I could tell time says nine o'clock. I have to be in bed now. Um, But on those days, I would just not go to bed, and then I'd be watching this program. And then at 10, I would just go to bed. So they're like, oh, I guess if he wants to do that, we'll just let that happen. And I started uh, popping in like blank VHS tapes and recording episodes. I started writing down bits that I liked. I started, you know, rewinding back and memorizing bits like Larry Miller's Five Levels of Drinking. Uh, I would do that bit for my babysitters. Like I that I had never been drunk before, didn't know what booze was, didn't know anything, but there was something about that bit that made sense to me right. that the more you drink, the more whacked out your head gets. That's all you really need to know as a kid about drinking, and uh so i would i I was drawn to it right away, and there is a a thing about jokes where I think uh. You know, people give you A and they give you C and then you have to fill in B on your own and just getting in the habit and the practice of doing that. And it's almost a brain exercise where you're doing puzzles. And I think you learn a lot as a kid when you have to fill in the blank and you go, well, if it's something that has to do with the penis and you have to put it on, I guess a condom is something you put on a penis to have sex. Okay. I guess I know what a condom is now like you're you're picking out all these pieces of life and you're putting them together and all of a sudden you know things that other kids don't know and you're like well that has to be correct and so uh, I think I I've always encouraged people to like let your kids watch stand up and don't explain it to them just let them try to figure it out. Uh, and maybe not the most vulgar stuff out there. Maybe not Jason Rouse. I think he's a great comedian, but maybe not for your kids. And I think he would agree with that too. Oh, he definitely would. Yeah. I mean, I don't think people's kids should be listening to me, but I recently met an 11 year old girl in St. Louis who had watched my comedy central special a ton And I think her parents did like fast forward through certain parts of it that they're like, "Mm, we don't feel like this bit's quite for you yet. And when she gets older, she'll be able to watch those bits. And then it'll be like a Ryan Stout resurgence in her head. But, uh, you know, it was really kind of fascinating to meet a young person who knew me from television and was looking at me like, oh my God, here you are in real life. Right. Because when I finally met Larry Miller, I met him at, uh, just for laughs in Montreal. And we sat there at the bar and we had a beer. And I told him, I was like, listen, as a kid, I memorized that bit and I did it for my babysitters. And Larry Miller said the greatest thing he could have said, the most humble thing he could have said. He said, that's great. That's how this is supposed to be. You know, I influence you, you influence somebody else. But the truth is we're all connected and we're all just in this together. And uh, that's, that's genuinely how I tend to think about stand-up comedy, which is... It's it's us versus the rest of the world. Yeah. So we'll be in it together. I, I hate when there's, like, rifts amongst comics and beefs amongst comics and, like, people that don't get along or somebody's, like, trash-talking somebody, calling them a hack. And I'm like, it doesn't... It really doesn't matter, guys. <laughs> you're just... You're just giving the rest of the world more ammo to use against us.
0: Right. I mean, uh... But
1: you're not overly dirty, are you? I mean, uh... Um, I've gotten dirtier as time goes on, just because I always liked um, dirty comedy, like Robert Schimmel. Oh. I really loved, really genuinely loved Robert Schimmel, and uh, he was filthy, and it, it hurt his career. I don't think anybody would deny that. I think he would say that it hurt his career, because how do you get on late-night television when you're doing a five-minute blowjob joke, you know? you're having a heart attack and shitting your pants. And they're like, no, no, you can't. You can't shit your pants on Letterman. It, you can't. <laughs> um, and by the way, that dirty stuff is fun. And I genuinely feel like, look, we're, we're performing in a dark bar for adults. So it, we're allowed to be dirty. Right. And I'm, I'm of the same school of thought that like, okay, well, since it's for adults, then kids shouldn't be watching me. Or if they do watch me, they should be sneaking away from their parents to watch me secretly, and it should be, like, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, they're breaking the rules to see me.
0: Like, I was amazed when I saw Ian Bag. I went with him to do uh, at Ferguson at the time, and they were giving him notes 20 seconds uh, right before he walked out. It's like, oh, you can't use that word. I mean, it was like, wow, I'd be a nervous wreck if they were, like, uh, Wait, you guys were performing in he Ferguson. Was. Uh, he Missouri? was uh, no, for, no. Um, the TV show. Oh, I'd never seen a comic do
1: a set live on TV. So okay, I just want. Oh, Craig and... Ferguson, right? Uh, you say Ferguson, and I'm like, oh, Missouri. Yeah, yeah. Of no, course, I don't riots. think that my act would go over. Oh, it's racial. But, okay.
0: Well, mine. maybe roast battle can go to Ferguson.
1: Well, I was just in uh, the Westport Funny Bone. The St. Louis Funny Bone is in Westport, Missouri, which is just miles away from per- Ferguson. And then where the new helium in St. Louis is being built is pretty close to Ferguson. So, um, yeah, I mean, I it's, it's strange the, the racial tension that's there now because it's there even when I say like, okay, some of you are laughing and some of you are really tense right now. In most situations, that doesn't mean anything other than some people in the room are tense and yeah. other people are laughing. But there, everybody gets in their head like, oh, is he saying that the black people are tense? Is he saying white people are tense and, and black people are laughing? Who's these some people? Like they start to try to make the words mean something that they don't mean and that's when racial tension kills comedy because i'm like no 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 you guys are projecting your own shit onto the show right now right. and none of that's intended um but anyway you went you went to Craig Ferguson with uh, Ian with Bag
0: Ian and uh, it was just my i mean cuz i've never been on tv you've been on a bunch doing stand up i mean how much do they get into your set and go, Hey, you can't say vagina. You can't like when you did comedy central half hour.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty, um, extensive and it's pretty nonsensical because when I did, when, when comedy central did live at Gotham, um, I remember, uh, talking with Jonah Ray cause he was on the same season and Jonah Ray wanted to use the word butthole in a joke. Um, I think, I think he was calling somebody, you're being a butthole. And they were like, we can't say butthole. What we can do is go bleep hole. And uh, he was like, okay, that's that's fine. You're making it sound worse because now you're making it sound like I'm saying asshole. Right. But then I had a joke where I was talking about somebody's actual butthole. And uh, I wanted them, I was hoping they would give me bleep hole. That way it would sound like asshole. Right. But instead what they did was like, no, no, we're going to have ass bleep. You say say asshole, and then we're going to have... It'll be ass bleep. And I'm like, what what the fuck is going on here? Why why does the standards switch around so much? Um, and that was on the same season of television with the same people from standards and legal going over the sets. Um, when I was doing my Comedy Central half hour... There was this bit I was doing about how um, I don't like profanity, which is horseshit, but it, it fit with kind of the level of sarcasm that was happening in this bit. And I was talking about how you can't even rent like a nice adult film where a man and another man and a woman and a man and a woman have consensual sex in front of a camera without one of the five spewing out profanities. It's disgusting. And I go on to describe this woman hanging upside down and each one of the guys with a finger inside of her, like they're fighting for a tic-tac at the bottom of a wet pocket and comedy central went, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. Could you not say finger? (laughs) And I went, so, Five guys working a digit like they're fighting for a tic-tac at the bottom of a wet pocket. And I'm doing this hand motion like I'm actually doing it. And they went, "Um, don't say wet. So what actually aired was me describing a woman hanging upside down naked with five guys working a digit like they're fighting for a tic-tac at the bottom of a pocket. And they're like, okay, that's fine. That can go out. But don't say "finger" and don't say wet and i 'm like, this is completely arbitrary. This is nonsense um, I had a word I had a joke that um, had a lot of derogatory terms for the mentally handicapped in it, and the bit is all about how we should support the Special Olympics and how those athletes deserve our love and our support and even though that's the tone of the bit and that's the heart of the bit mixed in are a lot of really derogatory terms for the mentally handicapped. And so the joke is I basically can't see the forest from the trees. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, well, if you actually believe that they deserve our love and support, why are you using the word retard? Don't do that. Like, um, that's the joke. And so they were like, ah, that's a lot of harsh language. And I was like, that's fine. You can bleep all of that. And they were like, hmm, We don't want to bleep it. Um, Could you just not do that bit? And I was like, well, what's, what's the issue here? Because if you bleep it, then it's fine. And then people still get the bit because you're bleeping all these ugly words. And they were like, no, we don't like that stuff. And then I sent them a bunch of clips of comics they've had on their network where it was comics using derogatory terms for the mentally handicapped, where it went out. It aired. And they were like, yeah, we didn't know about... I mean, that was a different time. I was like, but this is stuff that's currently on your website. And they went, well, we didn't know that stuff was up there, so we're going to take it down. But we don't want you to do that bit. So you know what? I didn't do the bit. And you know what? They never took that stuff down. And it's like... It's almost like somebody wants to go in and do their job where they give all these notes about what people can and can't say. But they're just guessing. You know, There's no real standard. There's no list of words you can't say. It's however one person feels in the moment. And they're making a power play and they want to do whatever they can to feel like they have a job and to feel like their job is important. Um, Even when I did Conan, they didn't want me to do a bit on Conan that I had already done on Comedy Central. And I was like, guys, I've already done this bit on cable. You want me to do it on your show, but now you want me to change it. But you have the same advertisers on TBS as they do on Comedy Central. And they're like, okay, we'll just change this one part of it. And I was like, but you guys don't understand. It's already been broadcast.
0: Because of the language or they, what part do they want to change?
1: So it was about, um, I, it's it's kind of a lengthy bit about a third world kid. And uh Basically, um, I was getting a better price on a third world kid than my friend was. And so I felt I felt good about that. Right. And uh, I think there was some part I went, sure, sure. He's from Rwanda and he's missing some parts, but I love him just as much. And they went, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. And I was like, but I've already done that. It's already been broadcast that way. And they're like, well, we just feel like that's that's over the line. And I was like, well, I would agree with you but it's already been broadcast. Like, you're not going to change anything by making me change the bit. And then they came back, and they're like, we would just prefer if you would just say something else. Is there anything else you could say? And so, you know, I want to play ball. I want to be on the show. So I changed it to... uh, um, And sure, sure, I got one of the ugly ones, but I love him just as much. And now that takes a lot of the, you know, sting out of it. Right. But... uh, And it takes a lot of the sarcastic American capitalist, uh, commentary out of it, you know, cause it is a bit about capitalism. It's about how we feel good getting a better price than our friends do on things. And, you know, when you're getting a better price at the expense of somebody else talking about Rwandan genocide, like that really gives a lot more weight to this concept of American capitalism. But, uh, you know they don't they don't care about that. They just want to make sure their ad- advertisers aren't upset.
0: Now, what's harder to prepare for?
1: Now, what is Conan four and a half minutes? Um, they told me to do five, and I think I did five on the nose. What happens if you go over five? The music plays. Well, I always wondered about that because uh, when I got off stage, they were like, "Wow, that was five right on the nose." They were like, you know. You could have gone to like five and a half. We didn't know you were going to do exactly. And I was like, well, you told me to do five. So I did what I was told. And I was kind of pissed because I was like, I, I did a lot of hard work to get it down to five. Exactly. Right. Um, but I've seen I watch one comic, and I won't mention his name. like i don't we don't need to talk shit about comics. No, no the, the world already has enough uh, shit they talk about comics. But uh, there was one guy he went on, and I kind of empathize, and I'm kind of jealous. He went on and he speaks kind of slowly. so um, you know, before you do those things, you agree to do a certain set. And that set gets run through legal, it gets run through producers, it gets approved. So he gets out there, he starts doing a set, and he's getting massive applause breaks. And that's just eating up time. All right. Now, if you've ever heard like Jeff Foxworthy, he was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and Foxworthy's like, people are laughing too hard, they're clapping too much. So in my head, I'm like editing, going, all right, what can I cut here? What can I cut there? So I stick to my time. Well, I think in that period of time, there was a lot less a um, hands-on producing as far as knowing what the set is before going in. Now, since you have to jump through so many hoops to get a set approved, when you're in that situation and people are laughing and clapping so hard, you almost don't want to change a thing. Right. Because you had to go through so much to get it approved in the first place. So this one comedian is on Conan. He literally did seven minutes. Oh, wow. And I have no doubt that it was a five-minute set that with the laughing and clapping just filled up the time and spread it out. Now, I empathize because he had his set approved, so he has a choice. He's like, I can do the set that it was approved or I can cut it down to five minutes. What should I do? I'm just going to do what was approved and let them worry about it. And of course, they had to air the full seven minutes. Now, that baffles me because that guy got invited back really quickly. And I was like, but he violated your rules. Right, You set up the rules, you approved the set and he went long. So somebody fucked up somewhere and now you're having him back. Whereas you told me to do five minutes. I did five minutes. And then it's like, you could have done five and a half. Well, I mean, why are you guys changing the goddamn rules around? Right, And that's, that's the one thing that infuriates me with this whole business where people have these arbitrary rules they've set up and then they want to talk about, you know, art. I'm like, no, no, there's no rules if it's art. You're talking about business. You're talking about advertising. You're talking about something else.
0: So you showcase for Conan, because I'm curious. We have a lot of comics who listen who I think are, you know, you're someone who's actually done it. Your agent sets up a showcase for Conan.
1: Yeah, I I showcased a few times, and uh, um, that was when Conan had The Tonight Show. And they were looking for comics for the Tonight Show. And then when he moved to TBS, um, I don't think they—I don't think I showcased for the TBS one. I just sent tape, which I went into my manager's office and I said, "Look, I want to do Conan. Here are two different five-minute sets. Can we send this over to them and uh, and get a response?" And they looked at the tape. They said, "Yeah, we'll get this right over." And then, sure enough, uh, within. A couple of weeks they were like yeah 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 let's i want to see this and that and this other thing on tape and then uh we'll we'll go from there so then i made a new tape and submitted again and then uh there was a fallout so what was looking like a july spot turned into an april spot and it was just a phone call like you're gonna do conan next week and i went okay great you know, <laughs> the the jokes they wanted me to do were jokes I had been doing for six years. Um, the jokes I had initially submitted were newer jokes that I was proud and excited about. But they were like, we really like this bit, and we like that bit, and we like this other thing. And I was like, those are really old bits, but I can do them if you want to put me on the show. Um,
0: had you done any of those on the Comedy Central? Uh,
1: uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you yeah.
0: can not repeat jokes, but you can use one or two that you've have aired somewhere else?
1: Well, I don't think it's, uh, I I mean, a lot of people have certain, you know, they get snooty about it. They're like, oh, I would never repeat a joke. Some people are like, I love to repeat the jokes because it's a brand new audience. Right. You know, if you perform on, you know, E or TBS or Comedy Central, those are all different audiences watching that stuff. So you're telling the joke to new people. Um, some people don't like to repeat anything because they want to look like they're so prolific. And other people are like, no, I want to repeat things So because I want people to know my jokes. Right. Um, I'm of the opinion that uh, they make you jump through so many hoops to get on that unless you have a relationship, unless they're asking you to be on, you do whatever you can just to get on. They want me to do jokes from six years ago? Okay, here's a tape of those jokes from six years ago. Do you like it? Great. Put me on. Uh, So we were, I was talking with, uh, do you know Ruben Paul? I know of him. Ruben Paul is uh, one of my favorite people to talk to about comedy because we talk about, you know, a lot about craft and artistry and how we get caught up in our heads about, you know, for late night, especially putting together the perfect five minute set with like an arc and a theme and a callback at the end and like all these like crafted things in there. And we started talking about another comic who, uh, again, no need to name, no need to talk shit, but uh, in one year, this guy did The Tonight Show, he did Letterman, he did Ferguson, he did, he must have done, and he might have done Letterman twice and Leno twice. That's a big deal in one year. In one year, it's it's huge. He might have done up to eight spots in on late nights across one year. And uh, th- when the guy talked about it, Well, when we were talking about it, we were like, I don't remember any of those sets. I don't remember a single joke from any one of those sets. And uh, Ruben even said, yeah, a few of those sets I watched and he was not doing well. And I went, oh, that's interesting. But you know what? Nobody remembers that. They just remember the fact that he did two Letterman and two Leno in one year. So from this particular comics perspective, it's like, hey, don't overthink it. Don't try to craft the perfect five minute set. It's get good. your face on tv most of the people in this stupid town don't, they don't watch television anyway they have a meeting with you just because oh i heard you were on the tonight show last night how was it you know they don't they don't watch they don't care they don't <laughs> i i had more meetings based on the fact that i was going to have a comedy central special than i did because somebody said oh i watched your comedy central special it was great i had to meet you it's all just based on this idea of things might happen right and so uh a lot of us who are obsessed with the art of standup are way overthinking these late night sets. We're like, we want to have it perfect. We want it to be a little gem, a little notch in our career versus the guy who's doing 10 spots that are all like kind of okay late night spots is the one who's dominating the business. So you, you have to, you know, you, you make your choice. Somebody asked me a long time ago, they were like, do you think it's better to be admired by your peers or to have a successful career? And I said, well, I don't know, but whatever choice you make, you don't get to go back on that. You, you don't get to flip-flop partway through. So you start now and you make your choice. And uh, that guy looked at me and said, I want to be the Britney Spears of comedy. <sighs> And I went, that's your choice. Don't ever change that. And I respect the shit out of that guy because, you know, I watch him on stage. He's not insanely original, but he's likable. People laugh and clap and uh, he's making money. He's touring and he is thrilled to be doing what he was doing. And I'm like, okay, well, that guy thinks of standup comedy as entertainment and he's doing it as entertainment and the audience doesn't know better. So clearly he has a place in this business.
0: I mean, that's my biggest fear. Is uh, everyone always tells me I'm a comics comic. And uh, although it's certainly great to have other comics, uh, it's a very competitive business. So when they like you, it's great. But, uh, you know, I'd like to be in the middle.
1: Yeah, the middle is pretty nice because you get to make some money and uh, you also get to have a little bit of respect. But, uh, I mean, the middle has its limitations too because you feel like you have a glass ceiling and a glass floor. Like, you can't go up, but you can't go down, and uh, and both are closing in on you.
0: Oh, I, d- I know that feeling. But I think of you as... Uh like you're a comics comic and you're successful. Like you're both to me.
1: I mean the success. Well, thank you. First
0: of all, <laughs> but I mean, you're on TV you're, you are know, I've never heard in 10 years, one bad word about you, which in this business is r- incredibly rare. You know, someone's always talking shit
1: about somebody. Right, right. And, and that's the thing. I'm not famous enough for people to be jealous. So nobody has the need to talk shit. <laughs> Almost just like I'm not famous enough that if I say some derogatory term on stage, nobody's writing a blog about me. So yeah, I'm, I'm in that middle realm, but I mean, I'll tell you the truth. This year has not been a great year for me financially.
0: But you, I mean, when you say that, you mean you, uh, in what sense? Like you're not getting, uh,
1: I, I toured a lot less this year. Um, you, you do reach a breaking point with comedy clubs where they say, well, we had him in and we really liked him. And then we had him in again and we really liked him, but he's really not selling tickets. So we're going to take some time away and see if something happens with his career, and then we'll book him back. And uh, sometimes those guys never get booked back, you know? Um, And I'm currently in the phase where there are a lot of people going, yeah, we like Ryan. He can come in and he can kill, but unless he sells tickets, we don't want to spend money on him. We'd rather spend money on this up-and-coming 23-year-old who might be famous later. We're going to give that dude a shot. We're going to give that girl a shot. So it's one thing that I think uh, everyday people never understand about stand up, which is it doesn't matter how talented you are. If you don't make money for somebody, you can be pushed out of the business. And unless you're popular, you don't make money. So you need some other way to make money. And then if you want to keep doing stand up and hope it works out, feel free to do that. But it is it is a sad reality. Like, I think I talked with uh, I think I talked a little bit with Mark Maron about that on his podcast and the way he just shook his head and looked at me, which you can't see right. if you listen to it.
0: Because he doesn't do a video. It's just audio.
1: Right. He, he's just like, it's a fucking travesty. And you could just see in his eyes, like the number of really funny people that he's seen bumped out of the business.
0: Oh, I know. I've seen... I mean, I would say if I was a booker of a late night talk show for comedy, I could expose the world to <laughs> so many funny people. Right, right. But they're either just socially awkward or they're just uh, a couple other reasons why I just... You see someone who was on a reality show get
1: Yeah. Well, I would say that the biggest reason that I've discovered for people not getting on late night... Please tell me. They don't submit. That's the biggest reason. That's why I've done so little late night because I don't like that submission process and I don't like being put through the ringer. So I'm like, "Mm, if you ask me to do it and I submit one tape to you and all of a sudden that tape gets approved, that's a lot easier process. So I'm going to wait for you to ask. And nobody ever asks. So you really have to push them, and you have to push them by submitting tape, submit tape, submit tape. Tommy Jonigan was on Letterman, what, five, six times? And Tommy is, I think, a year younger than I am. Um, that's huge to be on Letterman six times, especially, you know, four times before you're even 30 years old. It's enormous.
0: Oh. That's...
1: And so, uh, and why was he on so many times? Because he sent tape, and then he sent new tape, and he sent new tape. And he called and he said, I'd like to do a set again. Whereas I talk to guys all the time and they're like, yeah, I've, I, I don't remember the last time I submitted. And I was like, well, that's why you're not on. <laughs> How do you submit these days? YouTube clips? I mean. Well, that's what baffles me, too. I tell comics all over the country. Like when I work with some young kid who's, you know, middling for me in Toledo. And uh, I was like, OK, you live in Chicago. You're very funny. Do you have tape that I can show someone? Almost always the answer is no. And I say, okay, you need to get a five-minute tape together. And you need to put it on YouTube. And you need to be killing. And it has to be TV clean. Because we could just forward that link to the guy that books Conan. And you could be on Conan tomorrow. But you can't be on if you don't have tape. You need tape to get approved, so get tape. And as much as I tell young kids, get tape, get tape, get tape, I show up in that same market a year later, they don't have tape. And I'm like, guys, it's the only way to get ahead. And I'd like to stop right now to tell everybody, check me out on YouTube forward slash ryanstout.com. No, uh, please @ryanstout Ryan Stout. Yeah. I mean, I try to put up just little clips of jokes, um, from all over the place. I tape a lot and uh, I tape so much that I have a backlog of stuff that I need to put up. But currently, um, like back in, in July, I put up a clip that I was just so happy with. I'm like, you know what? That's 30 minutes of good comedy. I'm just going to release that for free. Let's just put that up. Who cares? Um, I'd always been very protective of anything that I made because I wanted to make a special or I wanted to put out an album or I wanted to do this. And all of a sudden I was like, you know what? That tape just worked out in a certain way that I really enjoyed. Let's just release it. And if people want it, they can they can watch it because I remember listening to like bootleg clips of Sarah Silverman. And she later released all those jokes on like a special or, you know, during late night spots. But I remember listening to those bootleg clips constantly because they were, they sounded great. The jokes were great. It was some of the limited stuff that you could get your hands on of her performing. And so I was interested and so I would listen. And so I was like, ah, I'll just put out YouTube clips. And if people want a taste of what I do, they can get a taste. Um... But young comics, as much as you ask them to get taped together... Yeah, I mean old comics. Do you yeah. have a new tape? No, I don't have tape. Okay, well, how how do you want to get anywhere if you don't have tape? It's the it's the lifeblood of everything we do now.
0: Well, it's like there's a comic in uh, Northern California who to me is brilliant. And I will say his name because he's not talking shit.
1: Yeah, you should absolutely celebrate good comics. Larry Bubbles Brown. Oh, Bubbles.
0: <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's... Like, mind-blowing that he's not
1: famous. Sure. He's been around forever. And I've known Bubbles my whole career. Because I started in San Francisco, so Bubbles was around.
0: Could you... you
1: From Ohio. Uh, Born in Cleveland, grew up in El Paso, Texas. And Hmm. then when I was uh, 17, I went to college at the College of Santa Fe, where, oddly enough, Annie Letterman went to college. But we didn't overlap. Because I was only there for a year. And then I dropped out and moved to San Francisco and started doing stand-up. So 2001, June of 2001, I got to San Francisco, and uh, I was working a day job and just doing open mics at night. Now, of course, at the time, Bubbles was not doing open mics, <laughs> so I didn't meet Bubs until I started hanging out at the Punchline or Cobbs and... uh you know, really digging into the the market and was around more professional people. But, uh, Bubbles is hilarious and has been for a long time. Bubbles also refuses to headline for some reason. Yeah. It's like yeah. Which is baffling. It's anti-success. Every single person out there. And I hope he's listening to this. Every single comic out there knows Bubbles can headline and yet Bubbles is the only one who thinks he can't. And, uh, Yeah. You know, if I'm working at a club up there, sometimes he'll just stop by and be like, hey, man, I just came to see you. I just want to see how stout. And uh, he's he's hilarious. I was around when, you know, in 1980, whatever, he did Letterman. Yeah. And Letterman said, come back. We'd love to have you back. And then 17 years later, he was on Letterman again. You know why? Because he didn't send tape for 17 years finally 17 later years later he sent tape and then they had him back on the show and he's kind of proud of the fact that it's like the longest gap between letterman appearances he's proud of that (laughs) meanwhile it just reinforces in my head send tape dummy every every comic listening send tape Yeah, he's just
0: like scares me that someone that funny and talented is like you know, I'm like,
1: why don't you move to L.A.? He's like, nah. Yeah. Well, I think from my experiences with Bubbles, too, he has a little uh, little bit of OCD. Oh, absolutely. He's got a little touch of, uh, you know, uh, he has a certain lifestyle that he likes to live and uh, doesn't want to change that lifestyle. So, I mean, you kind of have to be flexible if you're in show business, because if you work in a, on a movie... All of a sudden you're in a different location, you're eating different food, you're not in familiar surroundings, and then sometimes you'll leave set and then go to a comedy club to try to get on stage. And that's weird. It's hard to do that. It's hard to go to a new place and talk to strangers you don't know and say, can I get on your stage? And unless you have it in you to absolutely push forward and face that possibility of rejection. Um, and that rejection, God damn, it just gets harder and harder, I feel like.
0: Because even someone like you gets rejection. I
1: mean. Constantly. I mean... Which is crazy I, to me. Yeah, I mean, I I get in touch with bookers and I'm like, hey, I've never worked your club before. I've always wanted to. Why don't we do that? And they they won't return my email. You know, I'll try to tweet at them or call them and they won't...
0: And what they do you just won't do, respond? Do you think it's because uh, I mean, to me, you're famous enough, but like you're just not. Uh, they want like someone from uh, America's Got Talent, which is like a big show. And, oh, this guy's hot. Our girl.
1: Um, I think some of them are very busy. Number one, um, I've talked to some comedy bookers who are my friends who they tell me if I get an email from somebody I don't know who's uh you know it says something about bookings i just delete it i don't even open it because i've got too many emails to read right i don't have time to be dealing with people i don't know there are a lot of clubs they deal with two agencies and that's all they deal with they deal with one guy at that agency and one lady at this other agency and that's all they work on and uh the fact of the matter is most people in life i think are lazy and they want to do the least amount of work possible. Now, when a new comic contacts you and says, I would like to work, and they go, ugh, now I got to look this comic up and determine if they're funny and try to figure out if they're going to sell tickets. I'm not doing all of that. I'm just going to go with the agent who's going to tell me who's funny. With the agent who's going to tell me why this person's going to sell tickets. You know, it's it's a Comedy booker being lazy, basically. Right. Um, some comedy bookers go to the festivals and they find talent there. And, you know, it's an excuse to drink and hang out with people they know. And that is how new talent is discovered. But uh, as far as like sending an email and saying, hey, will you watch my tape? Most bookers, they watch three minutes of a tape, if that. Sometimes 30 seconds. Sometimes if they can't hear it, like if the sound is bad, they go, nah, shut this shit off. Uh, if they if they really want to get booked, they'll send a better tape. You know, it, they're giving the least amount possible. And meanwhile, some poor comic is out there just dumping their life into, you know, getting a good tape together and sending it out. Uh, sending out a link and people aren't watching.
0: Is it important to put your best part of in that first 30 seconds because that's probably all they're gonna i mean i can't imagine them watching more than one minute like maybe hear the first joke and all right
1: right and i would say that uh more important than tape is just recommendations you know you have recommendations from like two three comics that they book regularly and uh, they'll book you like they're they're so lazy they're just like yeah, as long as I have his number and I can just get in contact with him real easily. Most, most bookings happen because you pick up the phone at the right time. Right. They, they, if they call you and they have to leave a message, they go, no, I don't have time to leave a message and have him call me back. I'm going to call somebody else. And so, you know, it's comics. I mean, we make it unfair for ourselves because we're all fighting for a limited number of jobs. Right? It's supply and demand. It's why we haven't had a pay raise since the 80s. Feature acts in the '80s were getting paid a hundred bucks a set, and now there are certain feature acts in certain parts of the country they're getting paid seventy-five bucks, fifty bucks a set. You're looking at one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not fair because the club is like, well, we need to make money somehow, and paying the comics isn't making us money, so we're just going to reduce the comic pay, and we don't unionize. So we have no way to fight back because we can't unionize. As soon as we unionize, all the other comics outside the union are like, I'll do it for $15. You know, they just want that exposure so they can get tape so that they can get management and then they can get on TV. And it's, we're, we're so busy. I mean, we're, I don't know what the analogy is, uh, crabs in a bucket. They could just crawl out of the bucket if they would just stop pulling each other down. But that's all that happens. They, everybody's trying to get to the top of the pile in the crab bucket, and they do that by yanking on somebody else's leg.
0: Well, I mean, I've had friends of mine who were pro hockey fighters, and oh, some, yeah. some of them didn't like fighting. Oh, they really? Either big guys, and they were good at it. They just didn't like doing it. And they are basically told, hey, you know, you do it, or there's 10 other guys in the minors who will. Right. And I find it similar in, uh, oh, Ryan, you don't want to do it for this price? Well, we got... Yeah. Uh, you know, Shlomo from, uh, Uh, you know, American Idol.
1: Sure. And I I run, I butt heads with clubs all the time where they're like, um, I say, Hey, how about we do this date? And they go, yeah, great. And then they leave it at that. And I'm like, and, uh, are we going to do it for this money? And they, it's almost like they're leaving it up to me to negotiate. And I'm always wondering, like, if I don't negotiate or have my agent negotiate, um, well then, what, what am I going to show up and do the shows? And then you're just going to hand me a random check at the end. Like what what do they expect out of me? So then I put forth a number and then they always go, Mm, can we do it for this? And I have to go, well, that's what you paid me four years ago and 150 television appearances ago. The The, the price has to go up. Right. And uh, then they start going, well, you know, we don't have a lot of money. Uh, we might have to get another comic for that week. You know, they start playing like, well, we're not going to give you a job then. Right.
0: And then what do you do? Do you like, I mean, it depends on how bad you want to play the club, I guess.
1: Sure. I mean, you, there's always things to negotiate for. And so you end up saying, well, how about this? I'll do it for that money. But instead of putting me at your shitty condo, you put me in a hotel. You know, there's always, right. a there's, there's things to be taken from it.
0: And do you sell merch?
1: Um, I do. Uh, which is something I never wanted to do. And I found out I'm really good at it.
0: (laughs) What do you sell?
1: I just sell my album that I I released. Um, and I even have, I've got the design for a t-shirt and I've had this design for a long time and I've never been able to pull the trigger on getting it made because I just can't see myself lugging t-shirts around. You imagine me suit and a tie and then a huge duffel bag with t-shirts like it just doesn't fit. Um, But I feel like, yeah, I could make money hand over fist selling these goddamn t-shirts stacks of cash like in merch. I probably make just as much, if not more than my other two acts are making combined. Oh, yeah, which just changes changes the game for you going out on the road because now you can afford to negotiate with these clubs and say, yeah, I'll take less money. Because
0: you know you're making it. Because I have a game plan.
1: Yeah. Um, But the problem now is, I guess my act, my hour long act, started to become just an infomercial to sell the CD, which was a whole different set of material, but kind of uh, creating a need to get more material and uh, letting the audience understand, like, if you liked what you saw tonight, then you should definitely pick this up after the show and take home a souvenir and, you know... Uh, I'll sign it. You could just put it on your computer then you could sell it on eBay for a profit. You guys can do whatever you want with this. Um, Giving them all the options like I'm just going to use the money to buy new suits and all those little things get into somebody's head when they're a fan. They're like, okay, I know where my money is going. I know that I have options once I have this product. I know what the product is. It just gets them like geared up to absolutely buy the thing and then you sell it to them (laughs) and then you walk home With a ton of cash. Um, The the problem is I showed up and I I did a show, I think two weeks ago, and uh, they were like, hey, we didn't have two comics show up. You were only supposed to do 20. Is there any way you could just do 45? And I went, yeah, that's no problem. It's absolutely no problem. But then I'm on stage going into bits, and those bits have callbacks to like things that are associated with selling the CD, but I don't have merch with me. And so now I'm like editing in my head, like, oh, fuck, I don't know what to cut or where to cut or shit. How does this bit work if I'm not selling a product at the end of it? Um, And certainly that's just because I'm out of practice doing a headline set where I don't sell something at the end. Right. And so artistically, now I have to work on that. Now I have to go out on the road for a few weeks and not sell anything just to be like, yeah, I have to remember what my hours like when I'm not also selling something because you can't release a special on Netflix and then reach over to the stool and say, after the show, I'm going to sell my t-shirt and, uh, you that know, would be fun. Eight by 10 glossies. Right.
0: Is that what's next for you? Netflix special? Possibly.
1: I mean, I'd like to do some sort of hour special. What was weird when I released my album, which was in 2011, when the album came out, I already had a brand new hour ready to tour. It was completely separate from what's on the album. And uh, nobody gave a fuck. <laughs> nobody cared that it was different from the album. Nobody cared that it was new. Nobody cared that I was ready to do a new special right then and there. And so... It makes sense to me now why so many guys are like, well, I'll just do an hour every year. Um, You know how a lot of bands will go into the studio and then create an album and then tour with the songs from that album? With comedy, it's kind of different. You tour, trying to develop the material, and then you release an album, and then you tour with the stuff that's on the new album? Like it It doesn't make sense, you know?
0: Well, the bands I like are all uh, shitty 80s metal, <laughs> glomming on. Right,
1: right, right, right. They don't, uh, they don't worry about the new material as much. No, no, you have to play the hits. The one or two that you have. Yeah, come on, Night Ranger, do what we need. I'm obsessed with Night Ranger. Yeah, I watched them open for Journey. Um, where was that? God, I don't remember what the venue was. Because they, well, uh, let's see, what was the Cow Palace? Uh, no, it was down here. We drove out east a ways. I wasn't driving, so that's probably why I don't know where we went. Um, yeah, I just remember it was right when Journey had their new lead singer, that little Filipino kid uh, who jumps around up. a lot. Yeah. A the lot.
0: UPS driver.
1: A lot of jumping.
0: Well, you know, they had the drummer doing a lot of the songs because he's an amazing singer. But then he got arrested for spousal abuse, so he's yeah. out. <laughs> You know, that band, that band. Well, I mean, Night Rangers is just like, you know, they don't get credit because of their image. Uh-huh.
1: You know, like, I don't know a lot about the band. I do, but I got a lot more time on my hands than you do. You're actually <laughs> well, you working. Just, you just have different interests.
0: Uh, well, uh, yeah, well,
1: I just... Uh, you can talk about Night Ranger, and I can talk about Traffic Court for an hour and a half.
0: But that's going to be funnier, and that's why you've made it, and I'm, you know... <laughs> it's funny, to, you know, I don't think... I, I do a joke about a Night Ranger video. It's never gotten a laugh once, but, but I still do it.
1: <laughs> and why do you persist? Because you just know, like, this joke is accurate.
0: It's just funny to me, I, you know... And these are, and I mean this in a loving way. You are, to me, at the uh, the A level of comedy, and I'm uh, maybe at the N level.
1: The N level? You think you're at N?
0: Well, I mean, in terms of success. Okay. And so it, it I think it's great for comics who are listening to this or comedy lovers to get both ends of the business. <laughs> the successful side and the, uh, you know... The guy who's doing Night Ranger
1: Well, let me ask you this, because I I certainly was at level N at some point, and right now I'd say I'm at level D. I don't think I'm at level A. Um,
0: But what I look at as level A is, uh, I mean, I guess... you know, success is different to, you know, some comics may look at Jim Carrey and go, 20 million a film. That's successful. I, I look right. at you as successful you, or Ian Bagh.
1: Well, or, yeah, success is certainly, yeah. I mean, as far as uh, success is a weird term that everybody defines differently. For me, success is that when I lay my head down on the pillow, I wrote something that day that really makes me laugh. Right. That's, that's how I know that I had a great day. And that's the only thing I judge it on. You know, the idea that I'm going to write on some television show or that I'm going to do some, you know, spot on late night. That actually terrifies me because then I walk out onto the stage for this late night spot. Something goes wrong. Maybe my body mic isn't working. Maybe the handheld isn't working. And I do my first two jokes and then they say, we have to start the we have to start the set over. And now I'm like, well, those first two jokes aren't going to hit properly. Fuck. Fuck. Now I'm fucked, and it's not even my fault. I imagine those situations all day long, um, but when I lay down on the pillow and I go oh that that joke works, it makes me laugh. Nobody can ever take that away now i'm I'm thrilled. you know what I mean If there's things in my like career that are ahead of me i'm I'm just laying down imagining ways that I'm gonna get fucked over
0: <laughs> there's where you and I are uh, right in sync,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: You know, but I—I I mean, do prepare
1: you, for the worst.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then if anything good happens, it's like, oh, it's not so bad,
1: right? Yeah. And the problem with us is, then when it does go well all we can really say is, yeah, at least all those things didn't fuck up. Right. <laughs> like, I never really feel excited about things. All I could think is, okay, here's where th- that didn't fuck up, and I was worried about that, and that didn't fuck up. So, okay, I'm okay with that. But, yeah, there's no, there's no popping champagne. I'd like more of that in my career, so, where uh, I'm genuinely excited about things I've accomplished.
0: But, like, I imagine you do a joke once or twice. Uh, maybe it's not getting it. A- reaction i want i'm gonna move on i don't
1: and what do you think that is why do you think that stubbornness sticks
0: well i do comedy because i just love doing it right uh i don't do it for the fame or money right i mean if you do comedy for 15 years yeah with uh, i don't want to say no success but maybe uh
1: (laughs) you know limited
0: i'd say we'll
1: say limited business movement Absolutely. Yeah, we'll do that.
0: I think that you're in it for the right reasons. Or, sure. I mean, in terms uh, I don't of,
1: disagree uh, with that. The
0: artistic- uh, Right. The craft. Yeah. Um. So, like, I have a joke about baby Godzilla. Five years has never gotten a laugh, but I, I still <laughs> love the joke, because it means a lot to me. Okay. Because as a child, I saw the show and I cried. Okay. And uh, it's just uh, about Godzilla basically being it an abusive father Uh and uh, never once got a laugh, but I still do it.
1: See, I mean, I love talking out those bits and trying to figure out why doesn't that get a laugh? Um, and I love asking like great joke writers like Brian Kiley, who writes for Conan has written for Conan forever. um, I love asking him like at the comedy magic club, I get off stage and I'm like, I've been doing this bit and this thing, I say it like this and then he laughs and I'm like, see you laugh, but they don't ever laugh. What do you think is going on? And I like hashing through like what, wh- how am I missing what those people are missing? Right. Um, and figuring out how can I articulate something better? Uh There was one joke I had about, um, and I would do it at the end of my act, that I'd been sponsoring this Make-A-Wish kid, and he had one wish, and his wish was for me to do the show tonight, and he wanted me to bomb. And, of course, this is after an hour of getting huge laughs. So it's already ridiculous, because clearly I didn't fulfill his wish. And uh, I'm, I'm like... Genuinely, I've told the joke with some really solid acting where I get choked up and I start to like my my eyes well up with tears and I say, but you know what? I came out here and I looked at all your bright and shining faces and I thought, you know what? That kid's going to die anyway. <laughs> and... uh you know, so so for them, they're on a position now because they can either feel ashamed because that kid's going to die or they can be thrilled that I, can, that I gave them the show, or the good show, where they got to have a good time. Like, right. uh, how do you balance both of those in your soul? But the way that joke was originally written was, but I came out here and I looked at your bright and shining faces and I thought, you know what? Fuck that kid. Now, fuck that kid doesn't have the same weight it doesn't have the same intention and it kind of has a double meaning if you're a pedophile so like it's not articulating what I want to articulate right so strangely enough that's one of those situations that by removing their profanity and being more focused on what I want them to feel I got a bigger more interesting response now I liked the joke just fine when it was fuck that kid but it was inconsistent right uh so I do get obsessed with that kind of stuff where it's like, how can I communicate what I want to communicate and have them get on board as well? So I don't know what's going on with your baby Godzilla joke, but like if I were you, I'd be like, what the fuck are these people missing? How right. can I, how can I focus in? How can I change some of the language so that they get it the way I get it?
0: No, I catch you.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, to me, that's the craft. That's the, how do I craft? There's something that's funny in my mind that I need to communicate. I just need to craft it in words so that they get the same thing that I'm getting. Uh, do you know Connor Kellicut? I don't, but he probably doesn't know me either. Connor is another Bay Area comic who, I mean, he's a great guy. He's put in his years of work, but his, his daughter had a, uh, you know, um, one of those school days where you bring in your dad and he says, this is what I do for a living. And Connor said, all right, everybody get out a sheet of paper. All right, draw a square. Okay, now draw a triangle inside that square. All right. Now just draw a circle around the whole thing. And they all did that. And that he drew that on the board. And he said, is that what you guys drew? And everybody went, No. And he said, see, because I didn't explain it well enough. So some of you have a square with a triangle perfectly inside of it. Sometimes you might have like a tiny triangle right in the middle. Maybe you've got a tiny triangle sitting on that, the bottom of it. And then maybe you've got a big circle around it. Maybe you've got a really tight circle around it. You all draw it differently because I wasn't articulate enough. He said, it's my job to be articulate enough for all of you to draw the same exact thing. He said, but instead of drawing shapes on papers, it's being articulate enough to make you all imagine the funny thing that I'm imagining. And I thought that was a brilliant way to explain right. joke writing. You know what, what makes joke writing ex- exceptionally hard is being the, the specificity of it.
0: How do you write like tomorrow when you get up, do you yeah. write every day.
1: You know what? I wish I could say I did. I absolutely used to. I used to really grind it out sometimes an hour, hour and a half, two, three hours sometimes. Would you just sit down and just like... I would sit down with a pen and paper and I would stare at the blank sheet of paper. And sometimes I would get out a stopwatch and I'd say, just free write for 10 minutes. And then we'll start it over and you'll do another 10 minutes and we'll start it over and do another 10 minutes. I've sat at a computer and I've tried to like cut and paste and, you know, really, I've tried to write in so many ways and... uh you know, I still don't know how I write, which is probably why I'm not on my fifth special. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I I try to absolutely write every day. I don't always get to it, which is uh, part laziness, part, part of it has to do with uh, when I was writing every day, we didn't have all this shit with MySpace and YouTube and everything when i started doing stand-up there was a lot less on the internet right you know nobody's checking their smartphone every five minutes for twitter updates um and so there there was just more time to write and so i would and now it seems like you know people are facebooking you asking you to do this show or contacting you on twitter fucking i can send you a message on instagram and it's like could you guys all just email me Can we just use one source that way I could focus? Uh, It's ryan at ryanstout.com. It's real easy. Everybody just contact me there.
0: Let's get those plugs out of the way. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Ryan Ryan, Stout.
1: Ryan Stout on uh, Facebook, Stout Ryan on Twitter, YouTube, forward slash Ryan Stout. Just go to ryanstout.com. It's all there. And Instagram? Instagram, I was really late to, so uh, I don't really use it. But you're on it. I'm on it, but you don't need to find me there. I'm. I never look at it
0: because you don't want to like post pic. You're not the type that would. Hey, look it, at. It annoys. A donut. It
1: really annoys me because comics had Twitter, and it was like, well, that makes sense because we write and we write in short form things. Perfect. And then it's like, wait, you're you're a comedian, but you're showing me your photographs. You're a photographer now. You're not a photographer. You you have a shitty camera on your phone. That's all you really have. Come on. Now, do
0: you like to... I like to burn a joke here and there on Twitter. Just, oh, this guy's pretty funny. Maybe we should go see him. Do you uh, uh, subscribe to that? Any particular uh, philosophy on tweets?
1: Um, My philosophy on tweets are that they are different from stand-up in that they're meant to be read. You know, there are a lot of people getting on stage nowadays that because they get so much, I guess... uh, fame and adulation adulation is that a correct word
0: well i went to uh, usc for a year so that that's good <laughs> enough for me adulation
1: um on twitter they think oh i'm funny i should stand up and say these things but when they stand up and say them i mean they might as well be reading them it doesn't doesn't change like there's no real timing there there's no real rhythm there's no real personality you're just reading off some tweets really um and then after you've done about 7 minutes everybody goes yeah we get it you have cute funny thoughts and no personality that's fine i will we'll move on to the next comic now uh it's not the same as doing an hour of stand up comedy where you have to like hook people in and have a personality and kind of let people get to know you and kind of get to know them and be the leader of a group I mean, that's what kind of stand-up is. You're the leader of that crowd of people for a certain period of time. And if they don't trust you, they start talking or they get up and they walk out. And uh, yeah, as far as me putting jokes on Twitter, like if I come up with a joke while I'm walking around and I go, yeah, that would work as a tweet. I put it out as a tweet. And then sometimes I'm like, that'll work as a tweet and I can... I can adjust it to make it a joke right. for the stage, but there is a differentiation for me.
0: Now, when you were on a show like Chelsea lately, did you, uh, cause there's so much emphasis on social media. If you have 50,000 Twitter followers or, you know, Instagram, I know it's a big deal to have tons of followers. Uh, d- did that help your social media when you were on a, sh- which Chelsea was a hip show and,
1: Yeah, I I kind of got to the Chelsea party a little late um, because she started in 2007 and she was a huge hit. 2008, she was a huge hit. I got on in 2009. (laughs) Um, There's a weird thing that happened, I would say, with Chelsea lately in that people trusted that show for comedy and there were certain people who were on the panel for that show who were great on panel And certain people on the panel who did not necessarily do stand-up, who then had agents calling comedy clubs saying, yeah, this person's on Chelsea lately. They'll sell tickets. You should have them come do stand-up. And now you've got this person who doesn't really do stand-up comedy at a stand-up comedy club, and then those audiences would leave disappointed. And then those audiences started to think, oh, we get it. These panelists aren't necessarily comedians.
0: And you're you're at the club the next week
1: and then, I, or the next year, or the next two years later. And it's like Ryan Stout from Chelsea lately. And the audience is kind of folded their arms and went, no, we're not buying tickets. We've already been burned on that shit. And it's me going, no, but that's not, those weren't real comedians that you went to see. I really am. I earned my way here. I was doing this before I was on the show. And, uh, you know, once, once an audience gets tainted that way, it's it's hard to win them back. Um, so, no, I, I didn't really benefit in a lot of ways from that show. Uh, exposure wise uh, for me, it was great. Absolutely great when it came to bookings, because, you know, I, I my agent could be like, yeah, he's going to be on Chelsea lately in two weeks. And he's got this other thing coming out and he's working on this. So um, having that and having it consistently for five years, I I do feel gave me a little bit of credibility. And then now she's got a new show coming to Netflix and I'm hoping to be a part of that in any way I can because, I mean, she seems to trust me. And uh, when people trust me, that's, you know, I, I feel like I owe them the world if they trust me. Right. Yeah, I'm going to do the best I can for them.
0: Well, I mean, how do you go about formulating an hour for the road? Like, is the first 15 minutes like getting in with the crowd or do you just go right from minute one?
1: You know, performing in a city like San Francisco or L.A. versus Cincinnati or St. Louis or Toledo, um, I haven't really ever changed anything. I get up and I tell the crowd this is how it's going to be and then I do the show and then it's very much that mentality of uh, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. (laughs) And I I mean, you learn that in high school speech class and I kind of stick to that formula when it comes to stand up. Like if you listen to my album, track one is called Prologue and track, you know, 16 is called Epilogue because that's, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you and then here's what we've just done while we were here.
0: Is your album on iTunes? It is. I'm going to buy it right now while you're here. Oh my God. I could
1: could just give you a copy.
0: No, no, listen. (laughs) I like to support.
1: You love to give Comedy Central 40%.
0: Or I could just give you 10 bucks cash, whatever.
1: <laughs> you sit down and then we'll, we'll, we'll get an album in your, in your hand somehow.
0: Well, here's what I want you guys, uh, listening right now. Uh, go on iTunes, Ryan Stout. What's the name of the album? Touche. And, uh, we're not done. I'm just, you know, you don't yeah, really yeah, get yeah. a plug at the end.
1: Yeah. But. Let's do plugs in the middle
0: because so, you're you're different, you're yeah. not just sending guest.
1: Let's let's do it when they're relevant. Um, so,
0: please buy his album.
1: Yes, it's, I'm very proud of it. I'm glad we put it out, and it is one of those things where it is a record. Not, not just a, a record that you listen to, but it's a record of a period of time in my comedy history where I listen to it now and I kind of go, oh, that's interesting that I was making those choices because I'm not that person anymore. Like for me, it was a big moment of evolution to get all that material off my back, to be like, all right, we've developed this shit and now it's gone. Let's let that go and explore new things. Um, artistically, there was a lot of freedom in that. To, to just let go and be done with that stuff. That was really a big uh, growth period for me um, because with the new material, I gave... I mean, I, I started to give... It started to care less what the audience thought, um, and I started kind of getting louder and pacing around the stage more and just getting in their face a little bit more and talking about a little harder subject matter. And I don't mean harder in that. I mean, uh, the goddamn album has things about the death penalty and, you know, uh, You know cancer kids and stuff like that i don't mean that kind of harder i mean just more intimate more personal to me as far as my life philosophy and uh trying to figure out what that was and getting on stage and really talking that out um but i would have never gotten i would have never felt that freedom have had i not burned that material right so i'm always encouraging comics to you know get tape put it out there you know, get a record, put it out there, just burn stuff and create new stuff. Somebody told me Maria Bamford that when she finishes a notebook, she throws it away. Now that's baffling to a lot of us because I have all my old notebooks and I will sometimes go back through them to see if there was some chunk of some joke that I never worked out that now that I'm a better, smarter comic, I can work out. And apparently Maria... Maria is that type of artist that goes, no, 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 I tried it and I couldn't make it work, so now it's done, and now I'm going to evolve as a person and as an artist, and whatever I create here on, that will be the new stuff. No need to look back. Um, So I'm the opposite. I'm, Oh, I I mean, I'd love to have that Maria Bamford confidence.
0: (laughs) Oh, so would I. Yeah. I mean, I'm working on a new Miami Vice joke that's really going to burn it up.
1: Yeah, you... (laughs) You're really stuck in uh, some childhood memories, but that's my problem. I don't think uh,
0: I could send a tape to Conan talking about Rambo, the first, no? one, the first one, eighty-two. I mean,
1: there was a nice period of uh, the mid two thousands where eighties uh, nostalgia was was real big. It seemed like I'm just obsessed with the era, but mm-hmm. you know, and it's it's
0: hard for me to not joke about it. Yeah, you know, I forget who said it was a joke about the things you love and it won't seem like a joke Mm -hmm. but it's hard to you know make forward progress in this business when you're stuck in a certain era jokes about the kiss lick it up album yeah wasn't that big in the first place but
1: i mean i don't understand why they don't remake i love the 80s and have you on it constantly
0: i mean uh yeah i didn't sit I didn't submit tape.
1: Yeah, need to send
0: tape. There's one thing to get out of this podcast. <laughs> I, I think I'm benefiting the most from this podcast. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I, I, just, uh, I just love the 80s. So like, tomorrow night, I'm going to see Alice Cooper and Motley Crue. Wow. Mainly for the joke writing. Like, just, I can only imagine what that crowd is like.
1: Yeah. I mean, by the way, that's relevant, talking about Alice Cooper and Motley Crue, their crowds now. I mean, that's a... You, I mean, you could easily do a bit like that on Conan.
0: Like, let's say you go. Uh, I, I want to put your brain in my body, which is probably horrifying to you.
1: No, it's fine. Let's do it. I'll I'll play this game. You're going to see Alice
0: Cooper, Molly Crew tomorrow. You you go into the arena. Like to me, I'm just looking around like a Battlestar Galactica droid. Another old reference. Uh-huh.
1: You know, just you're scanning,
0: scanning the whole crowd see you've already put it in a more eloquent Uh uh-huh. and in your thought process do you see a guy say a fat guy with a mullet and go what's funny about this or uh what would like be your thought process
1: um yeah i mean i would be looking for details certainly um for, for the most part i would just be I think my joke writing uh, has changed in that now I try to identify an emotion first right, and try to really specify what that emotion is and maybe not even my emotion maybe I'm trying to look at the fat guy with the mullet and try to figure out what his emotion is right now and uh, really get specific about why is he here and what is he feeling what is he hoping and, uh, and branch out from there but uh, yeah a situation like that you know you're just looking for details certainly there's that element that time has passed for all of these people (laughs) that all of these people could have been in this space 20 years ago and it would have been a much different situation for me that's the most obvious leap to take so I go all right. so what are the details in that that make it funny or interesting
0: right because like I saw Kiss recently and uh Kiss, uh, is another one of my
1: obsessions. Uh, Your favorite band ever?
0: I would say Kiss and Rat, which uh-huh. most people probably just stop listening to the podcast. You know, uh, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, I love Rat, but that's another podcast. I, I was so starstruck when I had the singer from Rat on the right where you're sitting. Nice. And he was chewing gum the whole time, and I just couldn't tell him to spit it out. <laughs> Everyone asked me, Earl, what was wrong with the sound? Did you not have a wire plugged
1: in? I'm like, no, he was just chewing gum. Like, he was chewing gum. It was just popping in his mouth the whole time.
0: You know, and I just didn't have the heart to tell him. It? Right. So, Stephen, tell us what the writing process was for Out of the Cellar. Well, Earl. Yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, cool.
1: Out of the Cellar. Let's see.
0: <laughs> so, you know.
1: So you went to see Kiss recently. I went to
0: see Kiss, and they sang a song called Christine 16, which is... Uh, Essentially, a song about uh, fucking underage girls, mm-hmm. and uh, like, like to me, I feel like I'm at a comedy class right now, the Greg Dean comedy class.
1: <laughs> I read that workbook when I was 14 years old. Right.
0: But I'm gonna take your motto, and we don't need to talk shit about anybody. <laughs> and
1: uh... well, comedy teachers, I think, are different. Okay. Yeah, yeah, because they they've decided that. And by the way, I don't. Uh... I want to hear this kiss thing and then move on to comedy teachers. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, right. So uh, to me, it was a cool song when they were singing it in the seventies, you know, that Gene Simmons was, uh, 35. Uh-huh. It's probably creepy then, but now he's like singing these pretty raunchy lyrics and he's like 62.
1: Right. And, and the, th- the audience who was, I would say 18, 20, 22 years old, who, you know, had very vivid memories of fucking a 16 year old. Right. That's a different thing than when you're you know, you know getting nostalgic about it in your your 40s and 50s. Yeah.
0: Well, like Molly Crew has uh, pretty much every song they sing is about sex. Uh-huh. And, uh, fair amount, uh, underage or yeah. right on the limit uh, girls and it's like, oh, that was cool back then in the 80s. See uh-huh. Vince Neil and Now Vince Neil's probably 58, big gut, you know, saying the same... It's just creepier to me.
1: Right. You don't want to imagine him fucking anybody.
0: And I'm sure he does.
1: Yeah, absolutely he does. Tommy Lee's. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that's a... (sighs) It's such a weird thing to think about, like even Seinfeld, when he went on Letterman um, for the last time, he did. He came out and he did a set and he did the same set that he did the first time he was on Letterman. And there was a joke in there about fat people. And uh, I'll be honest, I was watching the Seinfeld set at home going, this feels stale for some reason. This doesn't feel like up to date. It doesn't feel like him. And then he sits down on the couch and Letterman's like, I, I was, I thought I recognized that material. You did that set the very first time you were on. He went, that's the same exact set. And as you could tell from the audience, uh, some things have changed since that time. He said, people really tense up about the fat stuff. Now that was perfectly acceptable to do back then. He said, but you know, that's, that's time, times change. And To think about uh, where we've come with the internet and a lot of people getting their voices out there and making everyone aware of uh, marginalized populations and, you know, obesity and gender discrimination and sexual orientation, everything like that. And then you've got this fat guy on stage singing the same lyrics that he used to sing and everybody's going, no, no, you can't fuck 16 year olds. That's not okay. No, no, we've, we've, we've changed. Society's changed since then. (laughs) Meanwhile, you can't argue like, uh, you wanted us to play the hits and we're playing the hits. Yeah, right. So where where are we in this? And no one knows, (laughs) no one knows exactly what they want because everybody's trying to recapture the past and then you can't.
0: No, never. uh, I'm still trying though.
1: Yeah, it's going to be, It's a uh, you You can never go home again. I don't know who said that, but I'm pretty sure it was me.
0: Well, uh, true words have never been spoken on this podcast, but <laughs> I do like the band Europe. What they do is they have one hit, Uh huh. the final countdown. Final countdown. You've seen it in the Geico commercial. They start <laughs> the concert with the final down, countdown. Yeah. And then they end it with the final countdown.
1: Yes, they do.
0: And then they're like, if you guys want to go to the bathroom in the middle, go ahead.
1: Yeah, we've got your money. That's what we wow. came for. You guys came for final countdown. We'll do it twice. Yeah. Nice guys.
0: I think it'd be great if they did it in the middle just to keep it going. Yeah. <laughs> All right, get, let's get Let's
1: revitalize this thing. Do another final countdown.
0: Well, I mean, they've probably made more money on that Geico commercial than uh their whole disc-o- discography. Yeah. Which is crazy.
1: It's it's nuts when somebody has one hit. It's absolutely crazy. I mean, we don't know how popularity works, which is kind of what gets in our head as comedians, because we certainly know comics who, you know, they got famous off of doing one thing and somehow that popularity has sustained them. And now, even though they're bad at standup, they get to show up in Cleveland and sell out. And then the audience leaves disappointed because they're not very good at stand up, right. and it's like, well, no, you knew that guy from a series he did twenty years ago. He was never going to be good at stand up. He doesn't know how to do this. He's he was never you never knew him as a stand up, um, but you all paid money to see him because you're starstruck and he's popular, and the popularity as a, a business model is what a lot of clubs are relying on. A lot of a lot of club owners never figured out how to fill their clubs. You know what I mean? They never had to. In the 80s, people just showed up and club owners went, this is great. Let's collect money. And then in the 90s, people started to fade away and they went, okay, we can only book acts that sell tickets. Right. And it was like, why don't you learn how to do business where you make the community interested in your product without shoving it off onto somebody else's shoulders, I don't know how to fill my room, so I'm going to let Mike Epps do it. I don't know how to fill my room, so I'm going to let Dane Cook do it. I don't know how to fill my room, so I'm going to let Screech do it. And it's like, guys, why don't you figure out how to fill your room and stop relying on other people? And certain people have done that. Louis Lee at Acme in Minneapolis. That dude is very confident that his room is going to be full Tuesday through Saturday. And he doesn't need to give away tickets to do it. He doesn't need to book some $35,000 act to do it. He knows he how to make money off of food and drinks and to put on a decent show. He's made the community trust him as a club owner, and the community knows when I show up to this club, I'm going to see a performance, and even if I don't personally like it, that doesn't mean it's not a good comedian. And sometimes people get up, And they quietly walk out during the show and they say, yeah, I didn't, I didn't care for that so much. And the club says, well, we're very sorry. Comedy subjective. Uh, we do appreciate you showing up and giving this person a try. We think they're great. And they go, okay, well, thank you very much. We'll be back. And there's no refunds, there's no oh we're so sorry, let l- we should blow you so that you come back to our comedy club and then get pissed off again and make us blow you again. you know there's none of that. It's just very much like we know how to book good comedy. you should come see good comedy
0: well that's uh kind that's of what, the deal what's happening at the comedy store right now yeah is uh last couple of years uh you know it was run under uh Uh, interesting circumstances by uh, the the booker and uh, then the new one Adam Mm -hmm. uh, has just top quality comics.
1: Is Adam still wearing suits? Adam is you and Adam. Last couple of times I've seen him no suit.
0: Well sometimes he's incognito. Yeah. Because I think the number of comics who uh, bother get, him, yeah, um, you know, he thinks if he's in his Morrissey uh, tour jacket, yeah, that uh,
1: they'll just think, oh, who's that guy? Yeah,
0: who's that emo guy? Yeah, some, some at the Echo Plex.
1: I mean, that's one thing in this business I've never been good at. I just I don't want to bother people. I always think, look, if they like me, they'll ask me to do the thing. And that's that's what I want. Right. And meanwhile, there are a lot of people in this town hustling to be seen, to be heard, to do whatever they can. They're asking, they're asking, they're asking. And I've watched those people get ahead.
0: Oh, I've, I mean, I just it's not my personality to be aggressive like that. But right. I'm starting to learn uh, maybe maybe should be.
1: Send tape. <laughs> I mean, you could either send tape and hustle, or right. you can wait for people to ask you, and nobody's ever going to ask, because they have a whole stack of tape to look through.
0: Yeah. And I don't mean, uh, I i mean, I do... Uh,
1: and I mean that metaphorically, of course. of course. Yeah, uh, yeah,
0: You know, I don't think I'm such a great comic that people would say, hey, we want Earl on this show, but I do tend to wait and go, oh, I'm a funny guy. People call me.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Those calls don't come too often.
1: Sure. Well, strangely enough, even doing this podcast, you were like, yeah, I would have asked you, but I always think you're so busy. Yeah, and that, no. People think that about me. They think I'm so busy, and there is something to my demeanor where it just seems like, listen, I have a lot of shit going on, so this better be important. Um, yeah, that's but, why I never asked you. And by the way, I'm totally open to do so many things. Like, I've done uh, pretty much anything people have asked me to do. And it's only when people start to burn me that I start going, mm, no, I'm not gonna do that again.
0: Now when you say burn, what uh do you mean like uh
1: Hey, uh we're gonna I'm I'm shooting this thing and it's for NBC and we're gonna do a pilot. And then I show up and it's not professional. There's no the, the cameras they're using, I mean they're using a fucking GoPro, and I'm like, this is a pilot for NBC <laughs> and my face is gonna be on it? Uh I'm uncomfortable with this. Um there's no makeup, you don't even have a script. Now you're running out of time because you don't really have the space for that long. You didn't know how to produce this thing. And now I'm in a position where I've been here for three hours and we're going to rush through these scenes and we're just going to improvise them. And I'm going to look like shit on camera for you because you asked me to. Mm, if you ever asked me to do anything again, the answer is no, because now I know that you're going to burn me.
0: Now that I know that's your stance, if I ask you in a month to come back, would you come back? Yeah, man. I mean, I try to be professional with this.
1: <laughs> well, you're kind of in my neighborhood, too, so it's easy to that get over helps. here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey. You provide parking.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I try and provide. I have I've, uh, water. I uh, borrow
1: from my gym. <laughs> you borrow water from your gym?
0: Well, it's an. Uh, I, I, I'm an executive member, and uh, you know, I, I think one of the perks uh, is uh, you know that they provide bottled water. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this should be great to offer my podcast guests. <laughs> Why don't I take a few for the road? <laughs> Which every executive member does. At the when you see an executive member at this gym leaving, you see they look like a hunchback because they have a backpack full of the bottled water.
1: Unbelievable. That- well, and I'm no better because when I. I'm at a nice hotel and I work out in their gym. They always have fruit available Uh, and I will open up a little towel and I will load it with fruit and then I will carry that up to my hotel room so that I have fruit in my room nearly every time.
0: Have you ever played the parlor in Bellevue?
1: No, I always did uh, Kirkland, which is laughs. Right. And then uh, I hung out at the parlor that they built in Seattle. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Because at the parlor in Bellevue, which is like Bellevue's where like Bill Gates lives, and right? It's a very high end crowd. Uh, they put you up at the Hyatt, uh-huh. and it's a high end Hyatt. It's not like a regular one, and uh, they have great towels. I'll just say that.
1: Great towels, and you've got forty two of them now. I
0: got one or two, uh, you know, that may have, uh, you know, when I was. Uh, Opening uh, with Jeff Richards and the and the great Rob
1: Schneider. Both of them.
0: Oh, they're may. I mean, I've never improved so much in my life. I was the worst comic on the lineup every night.
1: Oh, well, that's great.
0: Yeah, really. Uh, most people would go, I don't want to do that. I relished in that role because I learned so much from both of them.
1: Sure. Well, it's awful to... Uh it's really hard to open for somebody when the crowd is there for that particular voice. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, somebody somebody who's been very kind to me and has taught me a lot and uh, I think is um, pretty spectacular on stage is Bob Saget. Oh, my God. Now part of the reason that I think Bob is spectacular on stage is because there is that philosophy to comedy that you want to be on stage, the same type of funny you are off stage. Right. And there is no transition for him. He is exactly on stage what he is off stage. And, um, that's pretty spectacular to be able to just pull that off. Um, and so we got to run around and, uh, you know, do, he took me to a lot of really great venues And the only tough part is it's people that are there to see him and they're not exactly comedy savvy always. So they don't always realize, oh, there's going to be an opening act. And so I would go out there and they wouldn't know who I am. They'd be like, is this some local dude? Is this some guy who's just trying comedy? Like they don't understand how it works. So then I'm out there for 20, 25 minutes hammering away on them and they didn't expect me. And that's, that's tough, but you learn how to do it, and then you learn how to do it so well that um, eventually you just go out and you destroy. Right. <laughs> and you go, okay, that's, that's how that is. Um, but yeah, that's, it's always been the biggest hurdle of comedy is you're performing for people that not only don't know you, but in some instances don't even want to see you.
0: Oh yeah, it's like, you know, whenever I see, like KISS usually uses unknown bands, It's probably because they don't have to pay them. Right. Uh, and I, they could be the greatest band on earth. I'm like, I want to see KISS. And yeah. Can you guys hurry up? Yeah. So uh, when I, would, Rob draws huge crowds, where, uh-huh. I mean, he's, you know, he's Deuce Bigelow and, you know, we play these theaters, I think New Mexico, we did a theater with like 2000 people and it was surreal to be in front of that many people
1: and know literally not one is there to see me. Right. Uh, but it made me stronger, I guess. Sure. And and when you get in front of them and you absolutely know like the things you can do to get that crowd together and to get them laughing and to get them warmed up properly, you walk off stage going, yeah, I did my job. Yeah, yeah. It
0: was uh, fulfilling most nights.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, some nights are awful. I mean, I opened for Saget in Philly, and this was soon after that whole Bill Burr thing. <laughs> and uh, we're at the Tower Theater in Upper Darby, which is right outside Philadelphia, and I was on stage maybe 15 seconds, and you suck, it the fuck off! And, you know, they don't know me. I love that shit.
0: <laughs> did you think of going Burr on them, like, and go, hey, or did you?
1: Um. Well, my first thing was, Hold the fuck on, everybody. We're not having another Bill Burr moment. You already did that. You already screamed and yelled. I'm not leaving. I'm here for 20 minutes. That's going to happen. That's going to happen no matter what you scream and yell. And some guy starts going back and forth with me, and I go back and forth with him a little bit. And, uh, I mean, Philly is one of those towns where they do want to challenge you a little bit. And once they realize, like, oh, okay. All right you're okay they sit back and then they listen and sure enough i got them focused i did my time i got my laughs and then i got off and my ears i I, my ears were hot like i had just been like in a fight (laughs) and uh my blood pressure i'm sure was like through the roof because it was i mean it was intense and uh but i walked off going okay Did your job? Now let's let Bob handle him, and Bob walks out, and of course they start heckling in fifteen seconds. (laughs) Because even though they paid to see him, they have to challenge him as well. It's just how that area of the country works. I mean, they treat their sports teams that way.
0: Oh, I mean, they had. I think the UFC uh, has only had one event in Philly because it was just too crazy for them. Oh,
1: that's that's the
0: UFC. Yeah. Like Rogan and that you know, people who love Rogan and Joey Diaz and like and I think the UFC was like this might not work out coming back. <laughs> so and you yeah, know their sports teams are notoriously. Like, sure. You know.
1: But those are those are good experiences. And I got to I got to really explore a new level of venue opening for Bob because you know, I had done big comedy clubs, you know, 350, 400. At the time they started building like 600 seats com 600 seat comedy clubs in like Phoenix and West Palm Beach. But when I started going out with Bob, it's 800, 8, 1,800, yeah. 2,500, 3,000, 6,000 seats. And you go, wow, this is a lot of people. I've never done this many. And you have to adjust your timing for that. You have to learn how to play a new venue. And then when I got to open for Russell Peters on his like Canadian tour, it's a whole nother. Life. Now we're in arenas. So my very first time opening for Russell, is in toronto at the acc in front of eighteen thousand people that's where the maple Leafs play to put that in perspective right right and this was uh you know i didn't know how to handle that size venue and so the only way you learn is to get out on stage and fall in your fucking face and sure enough i was mistiming things i was making poor choices i was using way too much energy to fill up the room and uh you know, that's the first few minutes and I'm struggling and I don't know why things aren't working. And then I'm trying to adjust and then I'm bringing it down and focusing in on, uh, you know there's cameras at the back that are on my face that are broadcasting my face on screens so i start looking into the cameras a little bit more keeping the energy a little lower just letting them respond to what's on the screens rather than trying to look from the third balcony across an entire hockey arena at my stupid tiny face that's you know 6000 feet away so once i started doing that the laughs start getting bigger i was like okay okay maybe this is how we do it in a theater you give more energy arena, less energy. Really? So then by the time we moved to the next arena, I was like, all right, I got this. And sure enough, I go out and it's gangbusters the whole time. But, you know, I had that learning experience in Toronto where it was like, ugh and trying to figure this out is like the first time you go swimming with clothes on, you go, why is everything heavy? This is, ugh, right. I'm, tre- I'm treading water real hard and I'm barely staying up um so that's what that was like but you know you have to learn those lessons the first time doing a theater in the round you did you see that louis special the i I think it was oh my god that he did at the uh celebrity theater in arizona it's a theater in the round
0: so you're in the middle
1: you're in the middle there's people 360 degrees around you
0: i've never uh, i mean i've seen metallica do that yeah 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 but i've never seen a comic
1: Again, I went out and I just, I'm moving around so much trying to make eye contact with everybody in the room. I didn't get dizzy, but I'm sure they got dizzy watching me spin around. And by the time I got off stage, I was like, all right, we got to reevaluate that shit because that, (laughs) that was not the way to handle that. But how, I mean, how are you going to know unless you do it, which is, you know, the most impossible part about all of this
0: right you gotta you learn by doing which leads us into the comedy uh teaching uh, <laughs> you learn by doing it
1: you do um you cannot do
0: you think you can teach comedy
1: well i think people confuse that question a lot uh between that and can you teach funny i don't believe you can teach funny can you teach comedy absolutely and nobody's bothering to try because when you talk about comedy you could talk about humor theory you could talk about joke structure you could talk about the history of comedy you could talk about so many things i mean we teach people in college about poetry doesn't mean they're going to grow up to be great poets but they know a lot about poetry by the time they get a, a degree we teach about you know painting we teach about acting we teach about you know novel writing none of that means anybody's going to be good at any of those art forms you become a good artist by doing but can you learn about it? Absolutely, you can learn about it. But uh, I think this, this promise that you go into a class and that you'll emerge a great comedian is utter bullshit. Now, will they teach you things that will perhaps help you along the way? Yeah, but you have to really pick and choose. You have to pick and choose what you think is important and what you're going to absolutely you know, ignore. And, you know, the only way to do that is to go to multiple, you know, right. comedy teachers and see what they have to say. Whereas there are plenty of people who it's like, eh, just get on stage. You'll figure it out eventually. I mean, there was, uh, you know, somebody told me, you know, when you watch late night comedy, it's never just one long story. It's nine jokes. Right. So... You're, you're getting on stage telling one long story. How about you stop fucking doing that? And I went, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't do that. And then sure enough, years later, I see Jim Jeffries doing a 27-minute story on an HBO special. And I'm like, fuck, that, I could have been doing that. Right. Why do I need to do this late-night garbage? Why would? Why did I ever train myself to do nine jokes in four minutes and 15 seconds? to allow 45 seconds for laughter and say goodnight when I could be learning to tell a story. You know, there's so many different ways to do this and to figure out how you do it. I mean, there's only one way to do that and that's to get on stage. And do it. But there are... I mean, you can take suggestions. I mean, Greg Dean, his comedy workbook can teach you about setup and punchline and tags. Uh, You can read Judy Carter's book and learn something about... The Joke Bible. um, Well, she had one before that uh stand up comedy the book or something and then she released the stand up comedy bible uh but yeah and and she's going to give you kind of something i talked about earlier which was like all right pick a topic and then pick how you feel about that does that topic make you scared does it make you excited does it make you you know whatever apprehensive um And she gave very limited emotions. And I think when you start to get into those really deep emotions, those ones that aren't specific, where you're kind of conflicted. um, I'm excited about that, but I'm also scared because uh, then you really start exploring deep material. But, uh, you know, those things do have their helpful ideas in them. But if you don't know what you're looking for, you can't tell which ideas are good and which ones are bad.
0: Well, you know, I uh, look at some of Greg Dean's uh, materials, uh-huh. and then uh, I saw on uh, iTunes that he also has a how-to guide on how to pick up women.
1: Oh, and that's good. where he lost me. Yeah, that guy's just looking to teach.
0: Right, but uh, you know, I, I listen. I'm I, I'm trying to take your philosophy in life. Don't talk <laughs> bad, but uh, I don't think any stand-up comic, with the exception. Uh, Very few can teach a class on how to pick up women.
1: Well, I've never seen Greg Dean do stand-up. I haven't either. I I don't consider him one of our peers. I mean, he's been a comedy teacher since I was a child, so I have no problem talking shit about that dude, but the fact of the matter is I don't know anything that he does other than teach classes
0: like I would take a class by you uh,
1: which is you've be, done it it's going to be very philosophical in nature <laughs> but you've <laughs> you know? done
0: it sure, to sure. To, I mean you broke in I don't think people uh, respect uh, you know the San Francisco comedy scene for for what it was in the history of, you know, the Holy City Zoo and yeah you know, uh, Robin Williams and, and
1: Dana Carvey and, and, and Margaret Cho and I mean, Will Durst and I mean, uh, Johnny Steele and Bubbles. Schneider. And Schneider was um, up there. Ellen spent time. Paula Poundstone.
0: I mean, that, that's in, uh, I mean, Rob would always talk about this one comic, Drake Sather.
1: Yeah. Uh, I've heard about Drake for decades
0: it's like uh
1: kind of a mitch hedberg-esque
0: from the standpoint of uh you know just a brilliant but uh, demons uh, and whatnot right uh i mean that's an amazing roster of comics to break into and, and you know uh the history it's like going to canada to play hockey it's like
1: right 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 you you learn some good lessons there and you learn them from the people that had to learn them first right like in la i don't
0: know if it's uh, you know the best place to start your comedy venture because it's everyone's already established here right. for the most part right 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 so someone coming to LA today is going to you know be in a room with you and, and they're probably not ready for that uh you know, uh,
1: I certainly wasn't. I mean, when I showed up and one of my first sets at the improv, I had to follow Nick Swardson, and then I get another set at the improv, and then I got uh, hey, we're going to put a guy up. He just dropped in. He's going to go up before you and then you. And Mencia went up and did 35 minutes, and then I went up. And uh, you know, getting up at the Comedy Magic Club after Bobby Collins. Bobby Collins did five minutes and got a standing ovation. And then... He brought me to the stage and I was like, okay, let's, hello, let's hear it again for Bobby Collins, everybody. (laughs) Um, And round of applause if you don't want to be me right now. (laughs) And sure enough, everybody gets on board and you, I mean, you just have to learn how to follow some heat (laughs) and that's hard.
0: Do you find it's easier? Uh, like when I first started, I used to love following someone who bombed because I thought, "Well, they're going to love me." Yeah, and then I found it was almost the complete opposite of
1: uh, you have to dig out of their hole.
0: But I mean, I would say usually the lineups you're on, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's too many bombers happening.
1: Um, no, it it doesn't happen too often. But I mean, I still like to show up at at open mics, like especially if I'm working in you know, St. Louis for a week or Minneapolis for a week. I mean, I usually go in a day early and we'll pop into their open mic. Same with like Madison, Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, I like to hang out a day later sometimes in San Francisco and do the, the showcase at the punchline. But on those shows, yeah, there are people that tank and sometimes I'm up next. And, uh, That's fine with me because at that point, the audience understands like it's a showcase. There's multiple acts. But uh, if I'm on the road and I've got like a middle act who is doing 30 minutes and just tanking. um, What do you do? Oddly enough, I feel real confident about that because I feel like, oh, these people are so worried that their night is fucked. Right. And I'm going to make them feel so comfortable in the first one minute.
0: Do you adjust your set like, uh, you know, like, okay, he's bom- he or she is bombing. Uh, I, I've got to go uh, some like crowd work in the beginning where you normally wouldn't or a, a particular joke where you usually wouldn't tell in the beginning?
1: Um, usually I don't have to. Usually I'm, I'm confident enough in my first, you know, the way I open that I'm like, yeah, that's going to hit hard enough that they're going to perk up and go, oh, this is different. This guy's different from the last comedian. Things are going to be okay. And uh, yeah, it's, I I can't, I can't think of a time when that didn't work. Actually, you know what? That's not true. There was, uh, but this is a different incidence uh, because um, I was, I was working at some weird casino and the opening act, it's just a two person show. He got off stage. He was like, dude, I fucking hate this crowd. And I was like, yeah, they seem weird. And then the voice of God brought me to the stage and I went out and I grabbed the mic and I'm talking and it's like, I can't hear myself. It's like the monitors aren't working or something like that. And I'm like, if I can't hear me, maybe the crowd is straining to listen. And if they're straining to listen, comedy never happens like that right? because they're not relaxed. They're straining. (laughs) You have to be relaxed and responsive Uh, to be a good comedy crowd and if you're struggling to listen you're you're upset you're already upset you're perturbed and so comedy is not going to happen now you're afraid to laugh because now you might miss something because you're struggling to hear and uh, he struggled and then I struggled and then somebody's heckling and I'm trying to deal with them but I have no power because I have no volume and you know it's hard to focus the room and the show started to fall apart and uh by the time that uh, they got the mic fixed, we got everything back focused again. I said, guys, this has been a hard show. And, uh, you know, I'm going to tell you right now, when I say goodnight, I'm not going to go backstage. I'm going to jump off the front of the stage and I'm going to go to the front door and I'm going to give hugs to anybody that wants hugs. And uh, and I, I partially said that because so many people had walked. Right. Like, they were pissed. Um because of the heckling and me dealing with hecklers and it just wasn't, it was a very tense situation in the middle of the show and, uh, nobody understood what was going on because nobody could hear anything. Sure enough, by the time they get the sound fixed, the late shows fucking fantastic again. But, uh, that, that didn't necessarily have to do with the opening act bombing that just had to do with shit doesn't work. And now it's my fault.
0: Well, it kind of leads us into heckling. I mean, uh, how do you deal? Uh, do you find I find most hecklers just want a little bit of attention?
1: I I find that too. Um, or I I think they they're just responding sometimes because they're drunk, right? And uh, some of them don't even know they're responding. Like you you've sat and watched TV with people who yell at the television. You go to a sports bar and there are people yelling at football players, and it's like. It's just how people respond to things. And so I was always very, um, I I would get really pissy with hecklers early on because I was like, how dare you come here and interrupt? Right. That's, That's how I viewed it. You're just interrupting the flow. You understand that timing is important, but you're fucking up the timing. How fucking dare you? And meanwhile, this person is on my side. (laughs) this person is enjoying my show until I start yelling at them. And now I look like a dick for everybody. So I had to really learn to like open my ears and listen to what the person was heckling and respond appropriately. And a lot of times when somebody's being really negative with their heckling, I will just play host and I'll be like, do the rest of you guys agree with that? And people will say no. And I'm like, all right, well they don't agree with you. So what do you guys think about this guy? And I'll let them talk. (laughs) And then they'll say, I think you should leave. They think you should leave. Do you want to stay or do you want to fight them? What do you want to do? And now I don't, now I'm not even involved. I'm just refereeing this fucking fight that I'm also orchestrating. And that tends to resolve things because then everybody understands like, oh, that guy's the leader and he has the microphone and he's just going to be in charge of whatever. So um, maybe I shouldn't yell out or he might turn the rest of the room against me. And it tends to work out fine.
0: Because I think uh, a lot of times the rest of the crowd can't hear the person heckling you. Like if they're in front, Almost heckler. Almost never, yeah. So you, you, if you snap on the person, you lose the crowd because, why is he being a dick to this person?
1: Yeah. A lot of times if I am snapping on some somebody, I will over-articulate what's been happening. Like, there was a guy in the front row. He paid for the front table, which was extra. And he's sitting there with this woman, and he's got his arms around her, and he's whispering in her ear the whole time. And he's an older guy, probably in his uh, early 50s. And uh, he's not being loud, but he's being loud enough to bother the people around him. Right. And he's not talking when I pause, but any time I start talking, he starts talking again. And so it's hard to like catch him in the act and people start looking around and looking at him while I'm talking. And then I get to a punchline and they don't laugh because they're busy watching this dude. Right. And so then when I had to call him out, I said, why is it that every time I start talking, you start talking to her? So now I'm articulating what's happening for the people at the back of the room. And I said, so every time you talk to her, they look at you because you're too goddamn loud. And then they miss my setup and then they can't laugh at the punchline. You're fucking up the show for them. Stop doing that. And now everybody in the room thinks, Oh, well, Ryan is looking out for all of these other people. And I even tell him a lot of times, I don't give a shit if you talk, but these people care. I have to kind of stick up for them. And, uh, for whatever reason, this dude he just went, yeah, we'll fuck them, really? Yeah, and I <laughs> said, oh, buddy, we're you—you you don't want to say that, not—not not here. This is Texas. People will fuck you up. <laughs> um, people will fight you, uh, which I say everywhere because right. everybody starts clapping. It doesn't matter if I'm in St. Louis or Philadelphia. They go, they might, yeah, miss. we will fuck you up. Um, everybody thinks their town is hard.
0: <laughs> Philly might be correct though
1: oh yeah yeah absolutely but everybody everybody claps in every town right. yeah Um. but yeah like being really articulate about what the situation is and who I'm standing up for and this and that all of a sudden the whole room is on board like that's how I deal with a heckler I turn the room against them and it almost always goes off without a hitch
0: do you get heckled often I would imagine not
1: strangely enough rarely And even that situation with the dude in the front row, it's not like he's heckling. He's just being a disturbance. Uh, Most people see me and they hear me speak and they see me in the suit and tie and they're like, okay, this guy's clearly, he knows what's going on. I'm not going to get involved with this shit. But some guys just, you know, they've had just enough drinks and uh, they want to prove to the women that they're with that they're the alpha male. And uh, I cut their fucking balls off immediately.
0: I would not want to see you... uh, You've got this very, uh, to me, and it's a compliment. A (laughs) Dexter-like personality of, like, nice guy. Yeah. We've been here now for two hours. I've loved it. (laughs) Free-flowing
1: conversation. But I would not want to see you angry. I don't like to see me angry. Um, And when I get angry at a comedy club, I'm really... um, I feel really vulnerable because I really let go, and uh, once you see the angry side of me, it's very hard to reel that back in and right. be like, "Ah, uh, we're we're here for fun, right, everybody?" Um, yeah, it's been. It, there's never been a situation where I get so angry that I walk off stage. That's never happened because right. I always keep it in check enough. Where you know we, I know that I have a job to do. But I will certainly walk off stage and get into the green room and go, what the fuck was all that? God yeah. damn it. Um,
0: do you say that to the manager? Or the no,
1: just my opening act, whoever right. my friend is who, <laughs> you know, will also empathize and who's also been in that situation. Yeah, the the club, I mean, there's no talking to them because you're, you're asking somebody to do work and right. nobody ever wants to be told to do work. Why? Why didn't we kick those people out? don't know. No.
0: Well, you know, well, especially at the comedy store. Well, now they have full-time security, but, uh, you know, before uh, they would have comics be the basically security.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which might be the worst. Worst security system ever.
0: But, uh, you know, now they have these big, you know, jujitsu guys there. So Do they really? Yeah. You know, uh, since the club's more popular, mm. uh, I think they thought it would be prudent and safer to have guys who actually know how to do with how
1: to remove somebody well i think you're on sunset too and sunset has that reputation for we're gonna go to sunset boulevard and we're gonna drink and we're gonna party and we're gonna do this and once you're in a an area where people are just drinking i mean you have more problems that's every comedy club in the country
0: do you have a favorite club to perform at
1: um I certainly like Acme in Minneapolis. Uh the comedy works in Denver was amazing.
0: Oh, the landmark uh, comedy works is like
1: Oh, the down down south? Uh, it's works in the south. nicer
0: uh I mean part of uh it's like it's yeah. mini amphitheater.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now I worked there. I worked there and it was uh um I had great time there as well. But uh yeah, those two I mean I've I've always liked uh Philadelphia as well. I like helium. It's a good, it's a good room. I I just like that town for some reason, because even in center city there, uh, which is kind of near the arts district, you know, the the clientele coming out don't tend to be real rough and tumble Philadelphia. It tends to be a little higher class. I mean, tickets are expensive.
0: Yeah. You're not playing South
1: Philly. Right. Right. So yeah, I mean, there's good clubs all over the place, and I, I'm always up for the challenge of getting up and trying to feel out what are these people like and how can I make my material work? Right. Yeah, which is which is the craft. I'm hoping my baby Godzilla joke works all over the world. I mean, I'm...
0: I, <laughs> you know, I, I, it's not a good way to end the podcast. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a callback, I mean... That, but that's why you're the moneymaker. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it just, you know, there's that, just that one scene where he's trying to teach him to blow the smoke rings. <laughs> no, I mean, the the fire.
1: Right, right, right.
0: And all he can do is blow these little baby smoke rings. And then finally, he whacks him over the head with his tail uh, and he blows out a killer smoke bomber. Yeah. And uh, then at the end, they, uh, you know, they fight the big monster final climactic scene and they show him walking with his son in the snow and i tell you if you don't cry (laughs) i I would cry right now if that scene came on because it reminds me of the relationship i had with my dad
1: not abusive but like oh i was gonna say he hit you over the head with his tail uh, well
0: he ruled by uh intimidation Uh, sure no he was the best dad ever uh and my mom but uh it was like you you did what he said yeah he had a godzilla like presence
1: I think I had that with my dad a little bit until I got big enough to where, um, if he ever like my dad wouldn't abuse me, but he'd certainly like grab me by the arm or by the back of the neck and come on, you're coming this way. Right. And by the time I got big enough to say, get your fucking hands off of me, um, our relationship changed real fast. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, uh, but uh, which was good for both of us. It was good for both of us. We're still friends. Oh, so your uh, parents are still alive? They're still alive. They're still together. I'm going to go see them tomorrow. They live uh, El Paso, Texas.
0: Okay, since it's the holiday season, sure. Uh, um, Now, one last question. Last
1: question, and then we'll be back in a
0: month. I would uh, seriously, but you uh, have given me hope as to uh, ask, and you get. Yeah, man. Maybe not every time, but like. You know, I just thought, Brian's oh, too busy. You know, I see on TV and i headlining all over. He, he he would never
1: want to come to my house to do this. No, I love doing this. And here you are. This is great. But, but you're a great guest
0: because you talk a lot. <laughs> no, it's I mean that as a compliment. Sure, uh, sure. You, you know, people who listen to this, uh, they don't want to hear like my gangbang story for the 50th time.
1: Yeah, well, and by the way, you get tired of telling that story.
0: Not that story, but I mean, it's, it's a great story. <laughs> But, uh, you know, they, you're like, that's why Tommy was an amazing podcast guest. Uh I could literally say, Tommy, what was your philosophy on comedy? And literally two hours later.
1: Mm -hmm. And what was great too is you on that podcast, you were doing exactly what I wanted you to do, which was you were like, I'm just going to sit here and let this dude talk. I'm just going to sit here and let this guy talk, which a lot of. There are a lot of people in this town that when they host, they don't understand to do that. They think the show is about them. And I think when you're a great host, you go, I'm going to sit back and let you talk.
0: Well, yeah, but that's like with someone like you. Uh, I haven't talked a lot because, you know, you've done what I want to do. So it's like, I want people to know from your mouth what it's like to a successful comic and, and how it, what it takes to get on TV and, and your stories about San Francisco. I mean, that is like, I mean, Rob still talks about it like it's like the, the comedy mecca. Right, like you could tell, that someone as successful as he is when he talks about bubbles and and Drake say they're all the, Robin Williams, Stephen Pearl, and it's just like wow, it's,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: But you were there.
1: I was there. I was there years later, and uh, San Francisco is one of those scenes that comes in waves, um, where you have that great a Rob Schneider wave where it's at the top and then everybody kind of, there's a mass exodus to LA and then there's a collapse and then it rebuilds. And then there's another generation at the top. And then, uh, that just, my, my group that came down to Los Angeles was like me and Moshe Kasher and Brent Weinbach and, uh, Kevin Shea and Jacob and Sherry Siroff. And, uh, when we came down to Los Angeles, Apparently there was another collapse up there right. and then it rebuilt again and some great, great people came out of that. So it's always up and down. And that's, that's one of those rare scenes because Chicago tends to maintain, Right. New York tends to maintain LA. There's always going to be talent here. Um, I think Austin, Texas always has people kind of coming up the ladder, but it's not a real big scene there you know, they've only got one major comedy club and then another kind of, uh, the Cap weekend room. Yeah. Cap city. And, uh, yeah. I mean, I think San Francisco is just a weird scene that way, but certainly Rob, when people recount the good days, they always recount those, those scenes where San Francisco was at its best, <laughs> the tops of the peaks.
0: So you would uh, talk about the lineups. They would have, just like, you know,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: And you know, it's like, I saw an old lineup from the comedy store the other night from, uh, like 87 and it was just like you know uh it's un- unbelievable it just letterman leno was on uh, maybe it was a little earlier than 87 uh but it was just like someone really famous was the mc yeah uh i was like wow that's that's crazy
1: i look at old calendars from the punchline in san francisco where it's like Henry Cho, three shows Thursday, three Friday, three Saturday. And the, the Saturday shows are already listed as sold out. And yeah. uh, you're like, that was Henry Cho. He was dominating. And uh, yeah, I don't know where that guy is right now, but holy Christ, that's that's the nature of stand-up comedy. You're at the top one day, you're at the bottom the next, and you just try to learn to do it as best you can so you can maintain.
0: Well, they talk about a guy like that in the comedy store, Harry Basil, uh-huh. who was just uh, three shows a night on the weekend in L. A. when, I mean, comedy in LA was the mid 80s. Like it was like, there's no words to describe how big it was. So and where is he now?
1: Yeah. 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 There's a lot of, I mean, I, and that's every, that's every art form, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, you I mean, know,
1: everybody knew Van Gogh was going to be huge. So they would trade paintings with him. And then, of course, he ends up dead. And then these artists end up selling these paintings for a lot of money so that they can eat. And, uh, you know, Van Gogh blows up later. Yeah, and so that's how it goes. Same
0: thing with Van Halen.
1: Yeah. I mean, you want to be the best or do you want to be alive to see it? What do you guys want?
0: I want to be I'm I'm a winner, right?
1: I want to be in the middle, like where you want to be, where right. I get to taste a little bit of it and I get to be OK.
0: Now, final Jerry Springer's final thought of the day. When I first saw you, yeah. you reminded me of one of my favorite bands. Okay. Because of the Suits, the Tubes. Okay. I mean, I thought, wow, this guy could be in a Tubes tribute band.
1: I think you told me that once. Yeah,
0: well, I didn't know you, and you are, uh, you know, I, I was in, intimidated to go up to people like you because I go, this guy doesn't want to talk to an open mic or like me. See, <laughs> so yeah, I, I asked, yeah. and here we are. Yeah. What... Uh, The suits, was it uh, something you always wanted? Was it, like, I look at my outfits when I started, like yellow pants and looking like Rick Rockwell. Right. Uh, Was it, you wanted to present yourself in a clean cut way from day one or was it a gradual?
1: I'll be dead honest, I'm not the most uh, fashion savvy person. And I would find that
0: amazingly hard to believe.
1: So, I I mean, I have a real hard time making decisions about what I'm going to wear, what to buy. A lot of times I will think, Shit, I need to buy new jeans. I just need jeans. And I will go to the Beverly Center or someplace and I'll look at jeans and I will come home empty-handed after three hours. Like making those kinds of decisions is very difficult for me. So I needed to pick some sort of wardrobe that would be easy. It was a very Einstein type moment where I was like, all right, a suit is always going to be a good look. Um I, sometimes I started out with ties, then I went no tie and then I went colored shirts for a while. And then I was like, no, I don't want to fuck with that. Um, so now it's just suits and white shirts. And then I have a series of ties, but uh, even the time it takes for me to figure out, well, what tie goes with this suit? I don't like, I don't like spending that time. Right. It is not a fun decision process for me, but uh, it is much easier than trying to figure out a whole wardrobe which shoes go with what pants with uh, does this colored shirt go, can I wear these yellow pants? You know, I don't want, I don't ever want to ask those questions of myself. So it's, it was literally just a utility issue. Right. And the other thing was um, I wanted people, as soon as they saw me walking up the, st- the stairs to the stage, I wanted them to realize, Oh, this guy's going to stand and talk. Right. Now a suit helps, helps do that. Um, and then people like George Lopez, he would wear a suit. And then when he would do an act out, it would be so unexpected and so silly because he's a guy in a suit. Why would he be doing that act out? And, uh, so that helps too. So when I start doing something very physically silly on stage, I think it looks sillier because of the suit. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it was a definitive choice. It's something that I think a lot of people ask me about because it's something I committed to so much but it was never really a choice for me it was just like yeah this will be easy (laughs) and so I went with it and then
0: your logo like almost to me
1: right I mean I do think it's odd thinking about uh, comics who are my age who you know I got to see on a very low level like Whitney Cummings and Aziz who are absolutely rich and famous now. Um, I remember eating soup with Amy Schumer at the improv one night being like, so who are you? How'd you get started? Blah, blah, blah. And of course these people are goddamn enormous, but what the, the, the interesting thread between all of those people is all of us started in this business, understanding it's a business. Whereas you talk to comics from the eighties, they got into this and they're like, yeah, we don't know what's gonna happen, but we understand we're making money now and we're making money just being funny, so let's just do it. And they had no business plan. They had no idea where it could go or you know what to do next. Whereas I, I guarantee Whitney Cummings, before she ever did her first open mic, she was she had a plan. She had a plan to be like, all right, we have to you know develop a show and get our face out there and do this. And a lot of those people, it's like, hey, can I pay you in cocaine? They would say, no, you have to pay me in fucking cash. I'm not getting paid in cocaine. And it's, it's one of the things that separates, you know, the generation that I started with from the previous generations. We just knew, make business decisions. Be Jay-Z about this shit. Be an executive. And uh, I think a lot of us made choices that fit with that model. Oh, I mean,
0: I remember uh, doing open mics with Whitney at the Sportsman's Lodge. Mm-hmm. Friday nights outdoor yeah. patio yeah and you could tell then she was like she was just one step ahead of everyone just uh she could walk into a room of a hundred people and find the one person who's important and just, just go right to them All right. All right where I'm talking to the 87th guy who could have a conversation about slaughter's discography <laughs> <laughs> so that's why she's on 9,000 uh, sunset right now on a billboard and I'm uh, going to see Alice Cooper tomorrow night. Cause I'm not booked anywhere.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, some of us, uh, and, and I include myself in that. I, I hung out with a lot of the people at the bottom because that's where I felt like I belonged. And I was like, yeah, I don't know how to do comedy yet. So I'm just going to hang out with these other people that don't know how to do it. And we'll, we'll go from here. And, uh, What I found in this business is you only get better by doing things that you're not good at. You only headline when you say, yeah, I'm not ready to headline. And somebody goes, well, guess what? You're headlining. So get the fuck out there. You're featuring. So get out there and do your best 30. And then once you do it, you go, okay, I got to figure that out now, now that I've got a taste of it. And uh, yeah, it's it's the people that don't have, the people that hold themselves back, they stay at the back. And the people in the middle, fortunately, have some people who push them forward. Right. And then there are the people like Whitney who go, I know I'm good at this, and I'm going to do it. Amy Schumer always had that confidence. I know I'm good at this, and I'm going to do it. Jesselnick, you know, there was no stopping that guy. He, he was very confident from day one. I know what I want to do. I know what my voice is. I know what I think is good. And so I'm just going to do that. And uh, there was no self-doubt, it didn't seem like. In any of those people?
0: No, I I did open mics with him, too. I'm I'm not sure. uh, um, There's a pattern here I'm following.
1: Right. Well, I mean, I think uh, don't don't hold yourself back.
0: Uh, You know, I can't think of a better way to end this almost Zen-like Tony Robbins podcast. (laughs) Uh, It might be too late for me, guys, but if you're a comic in your late 20s, don't hold yourself back and kiss ass that helps too
1: that does help if you have that in you do that i don't i just can't do it i can't do it either
0: yeah but i think you you're probably good uh maybe uh you're better at it than i am you you know you could schmooze a little bit i'm just (laughs) i can dodge around it yeah i I just can't (laughs) do it i I can't i'm not selling out I'm gonna be like that uh, Anvil, that band that never made it, but they had a documentary made about them. See, that's negativity right there. That is, yeah. Uh, Ryan, uh, first of all, thank you very much for thank taking you. Uh, uh, two hours. Uh, we're uh, Jesus. We are. Uh, we're pushing two and a half. We are at two hours and forty-four. Uh, oh, big time. Oh, we might even top Fultron's. Uh, epic uh, rant i know you're a busy guy uh i know we've done it uh but uh we'll save
1: more for the next one.
0: Oh, I, I want people to go i want to hear more of that guy and i think with your knowledge of comedy your uh your insight people will want to hear more uh so you comics listen to this podcast and share it because this is a guy who's the real deal He knows what he's talking about. He's been to the mountaintop. If you want to get there, listen to him. Don't hold yourself back. Uh,
1: Instagram, Twitter. Twitter, at Stout Ryan. YouTube, forward slash Ryan Stout. Facebook, forward slash Ryan Stout. RyanStout.com. And then when of- I come back, we'll talk about the Tommy Morris episode.
0: We will talk about, yeah, we, <laughs> did, we, I mean, we could go on for another hour. Uh, yeah, but But, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I think people tune out at about this time on a longer podcast. So, uh, guys, thank you for the love and support. Uh, inappropriate Earl iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, leave a review. I leave all the ones up, good or bad. And uh, don't go over the top like this is the greatest comic ever. You've got to play it cool. You know, just say funny
1: podcast, whatever. Don't play it cool, guys. You just you build him up.
0: Yeah, yeah. Just say it's a good... Just say uh, hashtag Joe Rogan. You should uh, really take steps from inappropriate and Joe put me in a rear naked. Uh, guys, thank you so much. Ryan, seriously, dude, you're good good buddy thanks man uh great comics so get on board the ryan stout train and uh on wednesday i'll do a review of uh, alice cooper and the amber alert light crowd that was in attendance <laughs>